Let's take it to the edge. Let's get the flitting. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Hey guys, I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here with my co-host, Kyle Daly of KH Daily Knives, and this is episode number 021, Leather and Stuff, our first menage cut. That's right, it's a four-way, baby. How are you doing tonight, Kyle? I'm doing pretty good, Dan. How are you doing? I am freaking outstanding. It says on your name here, did you shoot up a five-hour energy for this one? Yeah, well, that's what I took my pain meds with, is a five-hour energy. So I'm sure that's like uh, throwing rocket fuel on a fire. Yeah, y'all might want to buckle up. This one's going to get a little out of control. You sound a little better tonight. How about that? I feel a lot better. Had a follow-up today, and I have now a stunning 70-degree range of motion. Nice. Yeah. You should be able to get full stroke on that now. Just about. Um, <laughs> actually, I'm real excited. I've almost got enough range of motion to, to start trying to shape some handles. Awesome. You sound a little bit better. Sounds like you got a Christmas gift in the mail that you're finally using. Um, I did. Um, Apparently, I quote unquote had a crappy microphone. So somebody gave me a gift for themselves because apparently it makes the editing easier. I actually have a really grown up uh, podcasting microphone now. And yeah. sense of debt, which really makes me uncomfortable. I got to do something about that. Well, the old story of, but I didn't get you anything. Yeah, it's all right. What have you been doing? You said you had your your doctor's appointment. Have you been uh, working on anything um, like drawing up, thinking about some different knife stuff, reading some books, or what are you doing to fill your time now? Um, a lot of a lot of dadding. I've got the the two boys, and Beth is traveling a lot, so a lot of dadding, fair amount of reading. More a long time to read, more than a lot of read, but I'm getting better. And lots and lots of sketching. I got a couple of new patterns that I've really wanted to to work on and just haven't had the time. So I've been playing with the sketchbook. In a minute, when we do our shout outs, I'll talk about the, the new book that I found that I'm really enjoying. Cool. But before that, let's talk about our sponsors, unless I'm cutting you off. So uh, we have our sponsors, Dragonfly Bladeworks, John Kaufman of Dragonfly Bladeworks. Make sure you check him out. He's got some great knives, and you can find his knives along with uh, Dan's and my knives at Old Town Cutlery, and KH Daily Knives and Dogwood Custom Knives sponsoring the podcast. And our dealers, like I said just a second ago, Old Town Cutlery has all three of our knives, Dogwood Custom Knives, KH Daily Knives, and Dragonfly Bladeworks. You can also find Dogwood Custom Knives at Knife Center and the Knife House. And the, the Knife House link uh, apparently is still, they're still working on their website. Uh, I will send you a new link because I pulled it up just uh, just a little while ago and it was working. Really? Hasn't worked at all on mine. So um, Let me send you a new link. We'll, we'll give that a go. Um, with Dragonfly Blade Works, if you like Fiddleback Forge, um, definitely check out Dragonfly 
as you all probably already know, John apprenticed with Andy, uh, learned a lot of his techniques and picked up his style and then really kind of made it his own, especially with his uh, his pin patterns. If you're a fiddleback fan or you're looking for uh, something kind of heavy and bushcrafty with a, with unique handles, check out uh, Dragonfly. Yeah. And uh, he was on last week. So if you haven't listened to that one, uh, make sure you go back an episode and check that one out. Absolutely. But he's a sponsor. So I figured apart from being a pretty cool guy, we ought to give him the plug. Yeah. And he's uh, donated a knife into our raffle for fifty fifty Forge. And we're still doing the, the raffle for fifty fifty Forge. We're going to be drawing that probably at the beginning of February. So if you haven't uh, checked that out, make sure you uh, check that out. We're going to be giving away three knives, uh, KH Daily Knives, 7-inch Santoku, and 154CM with Deep Sea Shockwood, and a Dragonfly Bladeworks sidecar in ABL with Bakote handles. And that's in CPM, or no, ABL, he said. And then Dan is doing a Volpine Fang CPM-154 with Campfire Plantstone. And, uh, yeah, did you get those two sent up to me to get on the get some pictures for the website? Um, I sent them out yesterday, but uh, Alex shot some pictures. I thought I had forwarded those to you. Yeah, you forwarded a couple of them to me. All right. So, um, And cool. is one person winning all three of those, or is that uh, entered to win one of three? Yeah, so each $5 entry gives you an opportunity to win one of the knives. I'm going to do it so the first person that gets drawn gets to pick which one they want, and then the second person gets to pick the second one they want, and then the third person gets the the last one that's left. All right, so it's a a winner's choice, and we're calling that the the 9 out of 10 raffle? (laughs) Yeah. Paxton's a uh, Paxton's a great great guy. He's got a good sense of humor about the whole thing. And uh, if you don't follow him, fifty uh, fifty forge on Instagram, definitely check him out. I saw that he actually uh, was able to fire up the the forge the other day, and he squished some metal with his new press. So glad to see you're you're getting getting back in the shop a little bit, Paxton. And uh, are the t shirts the t shirts with the crushed finger on it? Are those still available, or is he sold out yet? Uh, I think the last I saw there was, he uh, had like 60 of a hundred full. So um, Mm -hmm. they're probably going to be all full by the time this comes out. But um, if not, definitely check them out. It's uh, I think it's 50 bucks. You get it, get a t-shirt and a pack of stickers. And then um, he's given away a bunch of other prints and uh, Jimmy Duresta, another guy that's cut his finger off on the table saw. uh, He, donated some ice picks and different things and a couple other people uh, donated some knives for Paxton's hundred person t-shirt uh, fundraiser. This really is kind of a nine fingered industry, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, literally every piece of equipment that we use on a daily basis practically wants to rip something off of us or sand something off of us, no matter what we're doing. So got to be careful all the time. I started it when I was woodworking with the table saw. But I'd turn the table saw on and then say spinning blade of death and then start whatever I was doing mm-hmm. just to make sure I never got too comfortable or forgot how dangerous the equipment was. Yeah. One of my shop teachers in high school, anytime he would turn a piece of equipment on, he would yell clear before he turned it on uh, just to let everybody else know in the shop that a piece of equipment was coming on. I used to have a, a heavy leather apron with a... Uh, with one of the plastic cutting boards 
um, riveted over the kind of the vital section of it. Okay. Because I, I used to wear just a denim dust apron, and I had a piece kick back off the table saw and bury about four inches into the sheetrock wall behind me. Wow. And that was one of those where I turned the saw off, went and changed my underwear, got online, ordered the heaviest leather apron I could find. And then when I got it, I'm like, yeah, no, that's still not enough. Gotcha. Well, um, you, had the, you got a pretty, we'll talk, probably talk about it a little bit more later, but you got a pretty sweet leather apron now, right? Oh, we were definitely going to talk about my new apron because I had to retire. Anybody that kept up with the Instagram after 10 years, I finally had to retire my old remnant of an apron mm-hmm. and I have now replaced it. If it can ever really be replaced, my new apron is whoa, 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 stop right there. So did you retire it to get it hung up on the wall or, you know, it's hung on the wall right now. Actually it's hung on uh, buster, the punching dummy right now, but I can't decide if I want to retire it and put it in like a shadow box or if I want to stamp out a bunch of discs and do a uh, stacked leather handle with it. It's not really the right leather for a stacked leather handle, but I mean, 10 years of loyal, devoted service. You can't just throw that away. Yeah. I kind of like the idea of it being hung on the wall. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah. So maybe hang it up high so it can look down over the shop, still be a part. Yeah. Very cool. And whenever you uh, end up kicking it, to be uh, sell it off like uh, the Loveless shop, be probably worth, worth, some, worth some bucks. You're making some assumptions about uh, my future success that, you know, I'm flattered. I, I appreciate that. But me and Loveless in the same sentence may not be fair. We'll see. <laughs> There's still You guys still got quite a few years left there. Yeah, I, I got a chance to get lucky still. Yeah. And uh, so for shout outs and gear talk, you got a new piece of equipment, it looks like? Yes. I, uh, I've got a new kiln coming. What'd you get? Uh, I got a new even heat. Uh, it's the KO 27. Okay. Because bigger is always better than not enough. Um, plus I have not given up on the f- idea of making a, a gladius. So I went ahead and got the 27 inch. It's the extreme. It's the, the high temperature kiln. Okay. I do so much stainless steel. My old kiln was running. Basically I was redlining it three days out of the week and it was just, it was a little much for it, so I went with a new high-temp kiln. This one's rated for 2,400 degrees, and it's got the fancy tap controller. And the thing I'm really excited about is the solid-state relay, mm-hmm. which will be able to react to changes in temperature at a fraction of the time that my old one would. So I'll get much more precise temperature control. So the tap controller, is that uh, where it can connect to your, your cell phone app thing, too, or...? It is. Is that a different one? No, it, it is. And a big part of that is um, I listen to podcast, audio books, that kind of thing on my phone in the shop. So it'll ping my phone for alerts so I don't miss stuff. And cool. um, I'm basically a lazy person, so I don't have to get up off my bench to change cycles. Nice. Plus, it's really easy to program, which... We've we've talked about it. I'm I'm willing to come. I'm not I'm not going to say luddite, but I struggle with technology. So the the CAT equals CAT programming on it is something I'm looking forward to. Yeah. Does that do you know when that's coming in, or have you already got that? Uh, I've already ordered it. Uh, ordered it through uh, Kiln Frog. Okay. 
but um, they don't keep them in stock. Once the order goes in, you know, the, the company makes it and ships it out. So it should be here in about three weeks. Um, Very nice. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm excited. Yeah, it's always nice to get new new equipment for the shop. Yeah, and it should get here just in time. Well, actually, I'm about still about five six weeks out from being able to work. So, it uh, if it gets here in three weeks, I'll have made it through the instruction manual in time to to get ready for the to start working again. And the new book I got is Metallurgy for the Non Metallurgist, which has been phenomenal. Um, it's a second, it's the second, well, it's in the notes, second edition by, uh, Arthur C. Reardon. Uh, I'm only a couple of chapters in, but so far I've really appreciated the way the information is laid out. Some of the other texts I've had have been a little over my head and I spent as much time looking up the stuff that they were referencing. It was just really slow to get through it or it was so basic that I already knew it. And this is a nice in the middle bridge between basic concept of heat treating and a little more into the the structures and carbides and grains and, and how they work and how alloying compounds work. So I'm enjoying it. Nice. Nice. And if you don't want to uh, actually read a book, you can go back and listen to episode six and seven of the Knife Perspective podcast where we talk with Jared Sponzilli about uh, heat treating and the different elements and the different steels and walk through the entire heat treating data sheet. So that's uh, some good ones. I've, I've already looking forward. I don't want to have him back on because reading this, I've already got some more questions for him, yeah. but I want to get through the rest of the book and have my, uh, have my whole list to blindside him with. Yeah. Uh, Cause this has been another, I didn't know how much I didn't, I didn't know how much I didn't know until I read this. And if you're uh Go ahead. It may shock you, but it turns out there's a lot I didn't know. <laughs> oh, I've I've studied it a bunch, and there's still a ton I don't know. Uh, Jared's always a great resource when I talk to him about stuff that's not knife related at all. But I end up going over there a bunch for failure analysis and everything. You can just look at something and say, "Yep, yeah, failed here." <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty pretty awesome. Another shout out, last one, one of mine, uh, Jason, one of our. Uh, people. He uh, talked me into the Tabletop Champions. Uh, it's a Dungeons and Dragons podcast. I have listened to pretty much every episode that they have from season two onward. That's a really good one. Listen to it every whenever they put out a new one. So uh, if you like uh, some of that stuff too, they're, they're nice and long, usually about uh, two hours or so a piece. So you can listen to them for a pretty long time at a clip and uh, get some some good laughs, and uh, all the guys on there are, are guys and girls on there. Is that the one where the voice actors are are playing campaigns? Um, this isn't one of the the more uh, professional ones. There's forget what role it's like role something. Oh, critical role, critical role, where they have uh, professional voice actors and stuff. Yeah, critical role. Thanks, Jason, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, tabletop champions is, uh, some of the people Jason knows, and he actually makes some dice bags and stuff for them, uh, with their tabletop champions logo on there. So I'll have to check them out. I'm, uh, I'm a bit of a closet gamer myself. Uh, it's, it is super funny. Um, yeah. Uh, Sean 
Uh, he he DM'd the first couple seasons, and then uh, Lauren, uh, one of the new people, is DMing the current season. So we'll have a link in the show notes to check that out. So that's a uh, that's a pretty fun one to listen to. Sweet. So. So as we hinted at uh, earlier, uh, it is actually going to be four people tonight, and we've already met two of them. Um, the third, Sarah, I was lucky enough to meet her at uh, Blade Show West, where I noticed a really Duke-a-boom. work uh, apron that she had. And when I went to check it out, I was really impressed with her sheath work, especially the, the aesthetic, the shape of the sheaths and the tooling. Um, full disclosure, she did uh, the circuit board themed sheath for the, the Tron Echo 5 that I've got up now, and it is phenomenal. Uh, I've really been impressed with her work, and I'm looking forward to working with her more. That one turned out really cool. Yeah, I, she knocked it out of the park. Yeah, I, I, I am looking forward to challenging her. I thought I was challenging her when I said I wanted a circuit board sheath. That one she seemed to have done way too easily, so I'm looking forward to, to hitting her with something really complicated. Uh, and then the, the fourth guest is Jason from Diomedes Industries. And if you have been in the knife industry for more than a few weeks, you know who he is. He's worked with countless makers. Some guys use them when they need production volumes, but they want that, that custom detail, um, as well as he does some really impressive uh, uh, custom work. So without further ado, how are y'all doing, guys? Good. Doing good. How are you guys doing? Hi, Kyle. Hi, Dan. Hi, Sarah. All right. Good. Uh, intro's all right? Fantastic. Yeah, intros are great. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, I mean, the circuit board was too easy for her, by the way. Yeah. Hey. Okay. <laughs> Hold on a second. I'm like a gamer. That's where I started my whole online whatever I do. And so that was just easy because it was right up my alley. <laughs> she said to me, she's like, should I even buy? That's why I got cool. excited when he handed it to me. She's like, should I paint this? I'm like, yeah, you have to do something. It took you like 20 minutes to finish that. So, yeah. Wow. Way to really just give her up there. <laughs> No, dude, it's, it's amazing work for 20 minutes, though. That's what I'm saying. It's... Okay, but I, there was some skill. Oh, okay, sorry. It took like five hours. She was just killing herself. It was crazy. Well, I made the pattern in AutoCAD, and then you guys know I have a laser, so I was able to laser that pattern on, so it just went on there perfectly, and then I just painted little dots and, well, dyed it and everything, whatever. Mm-hmm. Anyways, it was really fun to make. I, I enjoyed I, it. Uh, I've got some uh, some Fox-themed stuff coming up that uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what you can do with. Ooh, la la la. Uh-huh. <laughs> I always I always love uh, on Tuesdays when you guys put up your Quick Tip Tuesdays, try to always post them to the stories of the the knife perspective when i remember to but uh i definitely have cut uh sarah's one cutting the sheath out uh backwards i've done that oh, way too many everybody times. has everybody <laughs> has i feel so bad with the leather because i i always feel bad wasting meat or Same. any animal product whatsoever so as a left-handed dyslexic it always comes out fine for me all right Every sheath I cut out from now on is going to go to Dan. Yeah. I have a, just like Sarah made the joke on hers, every knife maker or a sheath maker has a box of them. A box of lefties. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And a lefty calls you and you're like, sweet. What do you need? I'll give you a discount. The first one I actually made was for my, my cousin who ends up, he, it was actually left-handed, but he was originally wanting a right-handed one. And I was like, you want to give this one a try? And if it doesn't work, I'll just make you another one. 
<laughs> it's like, yeah, we'll give it a try. Yep. So, so, um, Jason, you want to go first? Where did, where did you grow up? Hey, hey, ladies first, dude. Come oh. on. What are uh, you, a Yankee or something? You don't know this stuff? Sorry. Sarah, where did you grow up? <laughs> um, everywhere and nowhere. I was born in Germany and I traveled to California or no, wait, Texas after that. And then I lived a lot of my early childhood in Iceland. And then I went to California for my middle school years. And then my two high school years, I was in, actually, it was a middle school year in Japan. And then my high school, I was a corn husker. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah, Omaha, Nebraska. Hmm. Very cool. So I, I grew up everywhere and nowhere. I was a military brat. Okay. I was getting ready to ask you how, uh, How'd you get to go to so many cool places and live for a while? It was amazing. Yeah. I, I really am grateful to have the opportunity to have been able to travel because of it. Like I have no prejudice prejudice and I feel like I, I don't know. I just, I feel like I know the world, you know, like I'm able to see what other people haven't been able to see or what other people are just trying to see for their whole, their whole entire lives. And I'm just like, I've already seen that. Like I already saw the um, Aurora Borealis in Iceland. Mm -hmm. It was so beautiful. Yeah, that's one of the things I want to see. Yeah. Uh, one of my coworkers just uh, went on a trip to Iceland for two weeks, and that was pretty cool. It's wonderful. You have to go there. That's probably one of my... Well, it could just be that I grew up there in my early childhood, so I have a lot of really cool memories of it, but it was really awesome. It was my first time ever picking up a lava rock and seeing black sand. Yeah, <laughs> very cool. And Northern Lights is one of my bucket list items. It's beautiful there. Yeah, I struggle with the cold, though. I, I'm trying to figure out a way to see the northern lights and not be cold. Nope, impossible. <sighs> the best time to see the northern lights is when, um, I guess you're like probably seven feet buried in snow in Iceland. <laughs> That's the best time to go see them. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you want the if you want the best picture and uh, not being cold, you might as well just Google it. <laughs> no. no. Really, let's be honest. Jason's probably the only one on this podcast that could be buried in seven feet of snow and still <laughs> see the northern lights. Yeah, I'm, I might peek out a little bit. <laughs> no, it was so crazy, though, because the snow really will, would snow up until the second story. Like, we'd be buried in. Wow. I can't. Yeah, that's just not natural, man. <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> the, the first year I moved to Chicago, we got three feet of snow overnight, and it was above, or almost four feet. It was above the side view mirrors on my diesel pickup truck and took me and my wife three hours to shovel our driveway so it's like well not going into work today <laughs> there's a foot of snow outside right now in the seattle area and everyone's like shut down the schools nobody's going anywhere we're calling off work <laughs> i'm like okay <laughs> yeah yeah we were supposed to get a bunch of snow this past weekend we we're supposed to get like a half an inch of ice and then four to eight inches of snow on top of it and everybody was freaking out and we ended up getting like a quarter inch of snow total and a bunch of rain. So that stayed a lot warmer than I thought it was going to. See, we handle, we handle snow the proper way down here. You get two, three inches of snow. You shut everything down for three days. Everybody takes a vacation. You drink bourbon. You hang out for a couple of days, a little hot chocolate. It's a nice vacation. I thought they like left their cars stranded on the interstate and stuff too. Uh, that's, that's a slightly dis different situation. That's when it ices when you're at work. All right. See, 
one of our favorite games down here is every year, generally it's not really, the ground isn't cold enough for snow when it first starts to fall. So that melts. And then overnight it finally gets cold enough and freezes. So you get a layer of ice and then the snow gets on top of the ice. And every new transplant comes out and is going to show us stupid rednecks how you drive in the snow. Mm-hmm. And they make it about halfway out of the neighborhood and then they hit the ice slide off the road and bury their car in the ditch. And that's how they understand that we, it's not a snow problem down here. It's an ice problem. Yeah. Not that I have bias or anything. (laughs) So Jason, where'd you uh, grow up? I grew up in uh, Southwest Michigan. I was born in Kalamazoo, raised just a little North of there and uh, lived there until I was about 30. Um, I was in the military for a time and and moved around uh, when I was in the Marine Corps. But, you know, I didn't live there. And then you found out there were parts of the world where there was no snow and you moved <laughs> there, didn't you? No, I found out a place that would actually hire me as a, as a philosophy professor and then went wherever the job was. So uh, that happened around, I guess I was 29, 30, around then. I never knew you were in the, the military. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I was in the Marine Corps for, for four years. Should have been six, uh, but I medical discharge. There was a, there was an injury, but, um, yeah. And then back to school and, and, uh, a couple more degrees later, and then a job in Texas, and now I'm in Virginia. So where did you where'd you go to school at? Uh, college. Yeah, I went to I went to uh, a small community college for a couple of years, uh, where I ended up teaching, and then Western Michigan University for a couple of degrees, where I ended up teaching. And uh, what was your MOS in the Marines? Um, I was uh, a diesel mechanic. Ah, very cool. The diesel mechanic philosopher. That's it. That's a natural progression, apparently. That sounds like a natural book to me. Yeah. <laughs> there can be Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Mechanics. Why can't there be that's right. philosophy and the Art of Diesel Mechanics? Yeah, that's right. The philosophy and the Art of an Inline Six. There we go. Well, I always love the uh, real men keep it straight philosophy. <laughs> Don't have any of those V engines. No, that's true. <laughs> that is so true. So, Cool. Uh, so what was your first knife, Jason? First knife that I bought, like as a, or as like an adult. What's the first one you can remember? Oh, I can certainly remember the first one. It was the total Rambo knockoff, empty, you know, hollow handle with the screw on. I mean, it was terrible oh, yeah. from like Did the, have the compass on the back. Oh, total compass on the back with eight tons of shit in there you would never use. Oh, yeah. and a sharpening stone that you could never sharpen anything with. Please tell me it had a saw blade on it too. It had a saw blade on the back, and then you the 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 wire was on the inside, and you could put the two split rings, and it was like a, a wire saw that you could oh. use too. Yeah, that never ever came out of the handle <laughs> I, either. I still have mine somewhere. Uh, one of our good family friends that's no longer with us. He uh, he gave it to me when when I was real young. It wasn't my first one, but close to it, and that one was fun to smash into all sorts of wood and everything. When I graduated from uh, from boot camp, my brother, who was in the Army, Sean, that you guys interviewed uh, a while back uh, from 51 Bravo, he gave me uh, the standard K-Bar Marine Corps fighting knife, which I still have. And that's kind of a, at least a little bit more real deal than than the John Rambo Chinese special that I had. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, that's a good knife, too. What about you, Sarah? What was your first knife? Well, I didn't really grow up, like, doing any... Well, okay, I grew up boyfriends that like to go fishing okay and but i never own the knives i just use theirs 
So my first knife that I ever owned was when I moved out at 17 and I got myself a set of steak knives for like $10.99. Okay, that was my first knife. <laughs> That's all right, too. We all have to start somewhere. We don't right, judge. I'm sorry. That's a perfectly legitimate purchase of knife. Yeah, I didn't know that how important it was. I think that the steak knives cost more than my John Rambo knife. I think that's the reality <laughs> there. Probably more useful, too. It probably more useful. It worked better. <laughs> totally. It actually cut something. So, Sarah, what was your first leather product? Uh, the first, like, product that I ever made? Uh, no, that you owned. Oh, <clears throat> Yeah, we're getting deep. Oh, now. shoot. Um, <laughs> probably because everything that I thought was leather was revealed to me later on when I started working with leather that it wasn't really leather. So I don't really even know. Um, I think it was just a, belt, a leather belt that never fell apart. And that's when I finally figured out that it was actually leather. What about you, Jason? What was your first leather product? I think it was a, I think it was a hand-me-down jacket from my brother, a leather jacket from my brother, because he was six years older than me. So, And it was kind of a mahogany oxblood color. Now, whether it was, I think it was, no, it was real leather, but it was probably from something like Chess King or something out of Michigan. It, was, it was real eased out. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. No, like like you would wear it with penny loafers a la late 80s. Oh, uh, oh yeah. Big, yeah. Big giant lapels, maybe some padding in the shoulder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, um, shoulder pads. Yeah, the whole nine. Okay, seriously, you guys have such wonderful, like, first leather and knife stories, and mine is just like, I don't know, horrible. <laughs> you came about it a different yeah. way. You just came about it sideways. <laughs> there are many paths to get to the same way place there. Okay. <laughs> it's not about what you have. It's about how you got there. <laughs> oh, you looking at the philosophy professor getting all judgy. Look, I didn't have that. I didn't judge her that. I was just saying something like <laughs> Look, that. Look, man, I, I, it came off a fortune cookie. It wasn't bad. <laughs> you... You will be lucky today. Thanks, fortune cookie. <laughs> hey, but what's your magic Chinese word? It's usually on the reverse side. Yeah. Or by, or by the, 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 the lotto numbers. Yeah, the lotto numbers. Yep. Uh, there have been some people that that's actually worked for, so can't knock it completely. All right. So all of y'all have a leather business. You got family. You got a podcast. How, how do you keep all those plates in the air? Magic. First person to raise their hand answers. Oh. Ah. <laughs> right. I, was, I was waiting, dude. I was so waiting to raise my hand. Um, in my case, uh, so I work, I work full-time. I'm a college professor. I teach – this semester I'm teaching seven classes, um, five at Thomas Nelson College here in Virginia and two at Plymouth University. One's a military ethics. One's a business ethics. And then uh, – the leather business is kind of full-time. I've got two boys, um, 14 and 16. Uh, so, you know, sleep is for the week, and you just kind of keep plowing, I guess. it's it's. Um, I'm lucky that the courses that I teach and stuff, quite a few of them are online, so, so I'm at home with a lot of that work. Uh, but that also can really turn into you're working all the time. I guess about four or five years ago, Beth finally sat me down and said, all right, Time to move the shop out of the house because I'd always worked yeah. in the basement and I would never quit until until we moved the shop out of the house. Four o'clock in the morning, I'd go down to the shop. Right. And it was uh, I had to get some separation to get work life balance. Yeah. It's hard when it's always staring at you. Yeah, it is. And in, in many cases, you learn to be 
as efficient as you can be and you learn i don't want to say to multitask because i don't think i i, I don't uh, view that as a very good thing but for instance sarah and i end up hanging out a, a lot we hang out on discord because she's in the shop i'm in the shop and so you have some of that uh you know personal relationship you have a friend that you can talk to i listen to books rather than read books yeah and you know you, you have to do a, uh, quite a bit of that stuff to fit in sort of your lifestyle but then, then i also have to simply carve out the time and be really purposeful about it you know it's like hey guys thursday we're gonna go get pizza and we're gonna do this this and this and then you you just have to stick to that um i, I was not as good about that in the past i'm better at it now yeah with the audio books uh audio sent me a christmas card this year They're like hey thank you very much for getting us through that difficult third quarter <laughs> right thanks for the uh, ceo's vacation yeah. What about you, Sarah? How do you keep all the plates in the air? Uh, or do you? Yeah, I think they fall and crack a little bit. And oftentimes I end up gluing them all back together and then watching them fall again. <laughs> but um, so that's what multitasking looks like. I, uh, so I was a single mom for a long time. Actually, I knew I was going to be a single mom when I became pregnant. And I was young, I was 20 years old, and I had this kid. And then all the, I was going to school because I wanted to be like a nurse practitioner and then unit intensive care unit. And then all of a sudden my daughter, she just got very sick. Like she was born sick and I never anticipated that happening to my life. And so it just kind of like threw me off course because I couldn't really go to school. I tried, I, I got like my EMT and everything like that. And I passed, but I couldn't keep a job because she was always in the hospital. She was always, you know, homesick. She had IV lines in, she was having surgeries. I mean, it was just like crazy. And I'm the single mom trying to make it. And so I was like, I've got to figure out something that I can do for myself. And then also I would love to make supplemental income, you know? So that's when I started doing all of this. So it's been definitely a challenge because you know, I have a child, but it's been a blessing at the same time because I have found something to kind of like take my mind off of that part of what's happening in my life. And then I've also found a way to just to create things, you know, for my creativity, because I'm very, I don't know, I'm, I like competition. So I'm competitive with myself and all that stuff. But anyways, it's not easy. I can tell you that right now. Lots of audiobooks, like you guys said. I listen to podcasts too, which is how I found you guys because Dan didn't even know that I listened to his podcast until I saw him at Blade Show and I was like, I listen to your podcast. <laughs> which I was amazed because <laughs> she was the fourth listener. I mean, there was my wife, Kyle's wife, my mom, and I always wondered who the fourth person that listened was. Yeah. And I got to meet her. It was me. <laughs> Dan would have known if he had paid attention more to his DMs and Instagram. Oh, dear. <laughs> Yeah, that involves reading, and I don't do that so much. <laughs> yeah, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, I met, you know, the love of my life through leatherworking, and he's been a huge support of mine. So that's been a new thing as of the past couple of years, because it used to just be me and Quinn, you know, by ourselves. And so now I have this huge support system, which I never had. And I, it has opened up so many doors for me, which is kind of like, you know, I fell into Jason and, um, hi Jason, I fell into you. Hello. <laughs> but I don't know. Like ever since I've had that support, it's been a lot easier for me. It's challenging. Like I said, I've broke many plates, you know, many, many. <laughs> kind of the way I got into this was I was in school when Jack was born premature and you know, he was going to need constant care and Beth had to travel all the time for work. 
So it was the the easiest hard decision I ever made to drop out of school. And I needed something I could do in little spurts of time when he was napping or at night and working with my hands. Just it started out with furniture, but it was kind of the same concept is I needed to find something I could do around the kid's schedule. That's funny. You mentioned furniture because I know Andy Roy started in furniture. Um, yeah, that's what he told me. Yeah, I make a lot of sheets for, for Andy's knives. So Yeah, no, I know. Um, well, maybe not started in furniture, but he did furniture for a time. So maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe not started there. Yeah, no, that's right. His father-in-law was a, a big woodworker, and he did a bunch of projects with him. And then he then he stumbled into knife making. Yeah, I had uh, I had forgotten about that. You know, that might be why he let me in the shop. Oh, uh, he's just an idiot. That's why. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, because once I got in, they get me out. I mean, that yeah, was- yeah, 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 yeah. Throw knives at you to get you out. You know, we uh, never mind. We'll talk about that off air. <laughs> <laughs> um oh so y'all's podcast yes sarah is uh, a twitch streamer i'll let her talk about that but so we don't do podcasting uh just yet we've talked about doing some other things but she it, did a lot of streams so we did a lot of live streaming and, and then those turned into vods videos on demand uh, so go ahead with, with that sarah okay so you know me being a single mom and da, da 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 and I was losing my mind being at home and dealing with a sick kid all the time. And I was like, I'm playing video games because I freaking love playing video games. So I was playing video games and I, I made a best friend on there. I was playing World of Warcraft. I was a hardcore raider, you guys. Holy Paladin, thank you very much. That was amazing. Um, but anyways, <laughs> so I met my best friend on there and he was like, you should start um, streaming, you know, you playing video games. We will watch you. I was like, that's stupid. Video games. Right. 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 Together, like, and carrots, I does. know. So I was introduced to Twitch in 2013 or 14, which was right around the time where I was just like, okay, I'm tired of doing this and I need to figure something else out with my life. But I started streaming on Twitch and that's basically how it all started. I was gaming and streaming on Twitch. And then that's, I slowly discovered, I think it was like 2015 or 14 or 15 leatherworking. And I was like, yes, I freaking love doing this. And I was like, I'm done streaming on Twitch. You guys, I'm just going to leatherwork. And then right at this time was when they opened up the creative section on Twitch. And so I just started streaming my leatherwork on there. I became partnered and all this stuff. And then later on down the line, a couple of years later, I met Jason and I was like, Jason, we should do this thing together because we automatically had like a connection when we first started talking for a little bit. And I was just like, you should hang out with me. You got such a great personality. Let's do this thing on stream. And so we started doing that. And now what we do is we do like a little teaching stream um, every third Thursday. Well, it's supposed to be every third Thursday of the month, but it's hard to stick to it. But we do a teaching stream where we just stream our um, leatherworking every third Thursday. Yeah, it was it was a little interesting. We were uh, I was on Facebook. uh, I don't know, two. How many years ago, Sarah? Two, two and a half? You know, I think it was almost two. It was about two years okay. ago, yeah. You know, I told someone it was last year, but I think it no, was two years it's ago. it's got to be more than that. It has to be. Really? Wow. Absolutely. Has to Why be. does it have to be? Time is going by so fast. Jason's how I learned how to do all of my leather work from his, like, five uh, video <sighs> series forums. that he did on <gasps> yeah, yeah. Facebook, I think it was, or Blade Forums. Okay, Jason never told me about this. Yeah, yeah, I did a five-video series. It's still on on YouTube. It's terrible, though, now. Now it's just outdated, you know? Dude, he never even directed me to that. That's pretty cool. I got one-on-one time with Jason. I'm special. Well, <laughs> there was no reason because you had, you had different equipment at the time. Anyway, so... I'm on Facebook one night, and I forget what question you asked 
Sarah, it was about but, the cobra and um, tracks on the leather. I got tired of seeing tracks on the leather. Right. And I had had my cobra for some time and was working on getting rid of uh, So for those of you who don't, you know, are knife people and not sheath people, when you use a sewing machine, it's got this this foot that holds down the leather while the needle goes in and then advances. It's not like a normal, it's called a walking foot sewing machine, or most of them are. It's not like a sewing machine that you'd use to sew a pair of pants or whatever that is uh, has a feed dog and just moves underneath the foot. Um, so you end up getting with veg tan leather quite often um, presser foot marks, and it's it looks real bushly to to leave them there, and it, but they are hard to get rid of because you're kind of done with the sheath at that point, and so that's so what we should talk. And I think we ended up just FaceTiming at first. Yeah. Yep. Um, and normally I would say no to any and all FaceTimes, but for some reason Jason seemed authentic and he wasn't trying to get in my pants like some of you guys. Not YouTube. <laughs> Anyways, wow. he was authentic. So I was like, oh, let's FaceTime. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we FaceTimed and, and we talked about it. And then it was, then the, your questions really, you know, came hard and fast. And the, and the cool thing is about Sarah, and it's very rare. You've, it's very rare to find this. It's why people have trouble finding people to, you know, when you think back to the old school way where a, a blacksmith or something, we were looking for an apprentice. Most people they they say they want to learn and you'll tell them, but they don't they don't do it. They don't practice it. They don't care. They don't come back to you with, "Hey, I tried this now," and you can start learning from them. And and Sarah was always that. Hey, carried away. You're about to cut off the whole education. Like we got eight questions lined up here. Okay, <laughs> you're gonna cut us off. It's gonna throw off the flow, and then like I'll have to go down on the notes. It's, it's all right. Sorry about that. Jason, just introing the question for you. Yeah, that's all I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> so are you uh education did y'all apprentice are you self-taught did you take classes read books i have never been in another leather shop ever yeah i self-taught so i basically really wanted to make my dog a collar and i went to the thrift store and grabbed a collar or grabbed a belt and i was like i'm gonna make this into a collar so you yeah don't do that because genuine leather is is not real leather, okay? It's basically like chewed up gum with like vinyl over it or something. I don't know. Um, but anyways, I just wanted to make her a leather collar. So I grabbed that and my grandpa had like an old leatherworking tool set that he used when he was like really young. And so I was like, can I just use that for a little bit? 16 hours later trying to perfect this freaking dog collar oh my God. with tools that I had no idea how to use. Yeah. And like, I just had no idea what I was doing and I really wanted it to look better than I made it look. And so that's how I kickstarted leatherworking. I was like, that's it. I'm gonna figure this all out. And this was back in 2013 when YouTube was still kind of in its infancy, you know, like it wasn't really like a thing that people watch to learn things, you know? So I don't know. I, I learned my, I taught myself. And then two years later I found out about Ian Atkinson or whatever. And then I, oh, I didn't know that was, you, you watched a lot of a bunch of Ian Atkinson. Oh my God. Yeah. When it was like new, you know, and I was like, Oh, I need to know how to do this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was him and there was some, uh, somebody Rose that did a bunch of videos too. Yeah. Uh, Chuck, Chuck Burroughs who passed away. Unfortunately, Chuck was amazing. That's how I learned to do sheets. No, no, God. Well, sad thing is, is when I was looking up how to use things, if you don't know the tool that you're yeah. trying to use or what the yeah. key term is for the thing that you're trying to do, like it's impossible to figure it out, you know? Well, how do I use the poke thing? <laughs> it's not, not an easy oh. Google, is it? How do you use poke thing? No. See, and Sarah just hit on something that, that I think it's a reason we really click together when we're talking about leather work is because I would have never – 
my approach is not to just go buy a bell and get some tools and figure that out. I'll read 17 books and watch 44 videos and then try it once. Yeah, I'm on the same boat. Uh, no, it's just a different. I mean, way. that's probably a better way to do it, honestly. You want to learn to swim? in the deep end. You want to have this? You want to learn it? Wait, Dan's like me, huh? Yeah. He just like goes it all in and is like, "I'll I'll learn yeah. while I'm doing it." <laughs> it's it's cool though because Sarah ends up finding ways of doing stuff because she's not she doesn't know to not do it that way, and so she'll do something. She'll go, "I did this," and I'm like, no. that worked." So let me, you know, I was told not to do that, but let's try that. You know, because I've I've read the seven ways you're supposed to do it. There are a couple of things that I did in Andy's shop when he wasn't paying attention. And when you look at the finished product, he'd go, how'd you do that? Yeah. How'd you do that? You're not supposed to be able to do that. Yeah, it's awesome. It's just another example of how arrogant or ignorance, rather, is vastly superior (laughs) to your high dollar education. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, In terms of an apprentice, I was lucky enough to be on Blade Forums. their sheath making area, which had, I, I mentioned Chuck Rose before who passed and some other people. One of them who's still active there is Paul Long, um, who put out quite a few DVDs that are excellent. Um, but I just ate those up and he was nice enough to say, call me or I would text him or I would email him. Um, and Paul's a close friend of mine. Now I'm, I'm incredibly lucky to have learned virtually through Paul. Yeah. The, the forums used to be great about some really knowledgeable people that were willing to just freely give their time and and help and guide people. Yeah. And I think in some in some cases they still are. Yeah, it, there there are still some of those guys out there. They're just getting harder to find. Yeah. There's one rule in leatherworking that I find is not as true in knife making, but that's a that's a very small caveat. Um, because there are so many knife makers in comparison to sheath makers, what Paul taught me was, son, we have a dying art. And if we don't pass it on freely to the next person, it will die with us. And so I, it was beat through my head by the old hands that yeah. if someone asks you a question, even if it's something that you made up, you tell them. Yeah. And there's for a long time in knife making, it was I learned for free. So I teach for free. And then it started getting crowded and it kind of got to be anything somebody else taught me, I'll teach you for free. Things that I had to figure out on my own, well, that's going to cost you. Right. Um, and I get that approach, but it's yep. – we'll see how it does for the industry. Sorry, I got philosophical. Yeah, you're good. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right. You're, you're – you the again – Grinding steel is different than bending leather, um, and with forged and fire and the resurgence, this is where this is sort of the second golden age in the last twenty or thirty years of knife making. There's just a way different amount of people. Like I can count on a couple of hands people I know that make good leather for knives, and go to blade show and walk look at the knife makers. My God, as a maker, but the first problem I ran into is pretty quickly I figured out I could be a knife maker or a sheath maker. But I didn't have the time or resources to do both. And then trying to find somebody to do sheaths was a nightmare. Yep. Um, And then somebody that I could trust just to send customers to because being a sheath broker is a – I just want to be a knife maker. Yep. I've enjoyed having a small Rolodex of 
Do you want a bad <laughs> sheath? Here's the people to call. No, no, no. I'm not calling them for you. You just call them and they'll take care of you. Yeah, that's exactly where Sarah and I want to be. That's where we're trying to position ourselves is in those Rolodexes, you know. And it's a, it's a huge amount of trust to be able to just say, I vouch for this person, just go deal with them. Yeah. I love that. I'm getting a lot more of those since I yes, you are. started making sheaths. I get a lot of not return customers. Well, no, I get a lot of return customers, but it's the knife makers that send their customers to me. And those are the, the customers that I've been getting a lot of. And that I want more of that. Like, I love that because I like making the custom sheaths for the people. And I love that the knife makers trust me to take care of their customer. And that makes me feel really good. When Sarah and I first started hanging out, she made it all sorts of things. I do too on the side, but you know, when we were on a stream together, she might be making a Midori notebook or a, a choker or a, a million other things. And I kept telling her, I said, I said, Sarah, I I know zero female, good female sheath makers that that have capacity and that have ability. I'm telling you, the world is is wide open to you as long as we just keep doing this. And sure enough, she went to Blade Show West, and all of a sudden, the, you know, the, the books are opening up. They're starting to, and, and it's that's a lot of fun to see. That's a lot of fun to witness. Uh, so is there anything you would do differently as far as your getting started process? I would say if you can find a leather worker who's willing to teach you, like, in person and I don't mean online. Well, maybe online because sometimes Jason and I, well, I've never even met Jason in person actually. Um, but if you can find someone who'd be willing. That's true. Not as tall as he looks. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, not as tall as I look, he says. <laughs> He's much taller. Anyways, that would be like, if I could, if I could have found somebody back when I was learning to do all of this and teach me like what the tools are for and why you use them, what ways you can use them, um, ways that are unorthodox and all of this stuff and types of leather and what projects I would have loved that because it took me years to find Jason and I struggled. And even when I found Jason, I was still like kind of a newbie, you know, he still teaches me tons of stuff and we've been talking to each other for two years. So 30 minutes of, of 30 minutes of one-on-one -on -one education is more valuable than a book for me. Yeah. I agree with that. If you can't find a sheath maker, find a knife maker. I was lucky enough that I, my first knife was made with, you know, files and some O one one steel that I didn't know how to heat treat. And uh, a great slip joint maker by the name of Stan Busick, um, who still makes knives. Um, he's down in Texas. He pulled me in and gave me, every, you know, every bit of his time. He gave it away freely. I ended up making sheaths for him. Um, I, I owe him a lot more than, than he gave me. But he taught me the importance of many things that if you're a woodworker or even a leather worker, you don't understand about the preciseness of steel and working with steel if you want to make it good, right? I mean, you can bang together a leaf spring and that's going to be fine. That's brilliant. And I'm not judging that. But if you want to make a nice slip joint, we're talking about, you know, thousands and thousands of an inch and flat and parallel mean very different things in the leather world. Woodworking is a 64th of an inch. Working with steel is thousands of an inch. Thousands. Yep. And, and so Stan just taught me a lot about process and and then of course learning nomenclature, um, steel. Not that I know much about this at all, but because I understand the knife a little more because of the people that took me under their wing, I'm I'm a little better able to make a sheath. 
you got to know a hand if you're going to make a glove. Mm -hmm. Well, when I first got with Jason, that was, well, he identified that that was my problem was not knowing how to pattern it, you know, properly to begin with, like (laughs) measuring it out and knowing the patterns and how your machine works with your measurements. None of that I knew when I, when I talked to Jason, I was just like, I want this to look better, but I don't know how to make it look better. And he was like, well, let's see how you're patterning things. He took me through the steps. Once he taught me how to pattern stuff, I like everything just fit into place. You know, I was just like, everything just started looking way better. All of my sheath work started looking top notch. And he was like, all right, you're done. It's the same with and laying out blades, right? I mean, you can walk over to the grinder and grind a, a pointy object, or you can, like when I see Kyle laying it out, and same, I'm sure it's the same with you, Dan. You can lay it out with layout fluid. You can get it exact. You can scribe your lines and then make them to the lines, and one's going to look better than the other. Yeah. Uh, one of the early lessons I got was it doesn't matter how good your knife is. If it's not sexy enough for someone to pick it up, they'll never know that it's good. Yeah truth um so if somebody wants to get started like in knife making we usually say it's about 1500 hours to get some sort of basic level of competency what kind of commitment should they really expect to need to give to to the art to be confident to be competent confident either one i meant competent but either one um what do you think sarah god i don't know it's a really good question it depends Yeah, it is because it really depends on if you're coming in under an apprenticeship or if you're literally doing what I did, which was picking up a freaking old leather belt and tools that you have no idea how to use them and trying it. (laughs) So if you're coming in with some kind of knowledge or you read a book or you picked up a kit, you know, and you kind of know how to use the tools, then I would say you could probably be efficient within six months to a year if you're doing it part time and you're doing it consistently. But you're still learning. Like, I'm still learning, and I've been doing this for, like, six years. Okay, go ahead. Uh, I was thinking most people who are going to try to make a sheath are probably, and listening to this podcast, are knife makers, or at least knife enthusiasts. And so I would say this as a caveat to those knife makers. Your grinder is not your main <laughs> tool. Stop it. Put that whoa, 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 whoa. Stop right there. down. Okay. For dressing edges, though. Yeah. It is bitching for dressing edges. Until then, put that <laughs> down. And and the reason I, I say and and here's the next one: leave your metal sh- your your knife making shop to make your sheath, or you're just going to make a bunch of dirty sheaths. Yeah, we won't talk about that. Well, it's it's one of the things that that knife makers need to understand is that vegetable tan leather is tanned with the tannins of bark off trees for the most part. Those tannins act as an oxidization, oxidizing agent to steel. And so if you have small particulate bits of steel all on your bench and then you dampen the leather and put it on that bench, you will have a bunch of rusty spots on your steel. It's a process called vinegaroon is what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, you're vinegarooning. You're you're rapidly oxidizing it, the the metal at the surface, and it will turn it black. And no, it doesn't go away. I even use a belt that I only use for leather too. I don't exactly I don't use that. any of my like worn out belts or stuff for the the leather work. So that was a sideways way of talking about that. So if you're coming from the the knife making world, um, how long? The good news is, is because there's so many knife makers now, people are making sheaths, and there's a lot of good hand tools that didn't exist even two, three, four years ago. I'm thinking of stitching chisels in particular. Um, so a lot of guys were using, and my, I guarantee you the, the the thing that 
Kyle watched was me using a drill press. That's what I still use. <laughs> yep. Oh, man. I got such a talking to about a leather worker about my drill press versus the the hole chisels. Yeah, the hole chisels. Mm-hmm. Yep. The effect that it has on the, the structure of the leather. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's a little nitpicky, of course. Um, but if you're going for something that looks really good, uh, yeah, you're going to want to use a, a, an awl uh, or a, a, a stitching chisel. I think if you knew fold-over sheaths, simple basic pouch sheaths, I think, yeah, I think Sarah's right. Uh, within six months, I think you would be really darn good, and you'd wanting to throw away those things you made in your first couple of weeks. But we're all learning for the rest of our lives, right? Like, I am still mm-hmm. picking Absolutely. up things that I never would have thought you could do on leather and on sheath making, you know, in general, and learning stuff myself. And then I'm teaching Jason still. I don't know how. But sometimes I teach him something new. Mm-hmm. That's kind of cool when that happens, by the way, Jason. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, everybody everybody has a different uh, Instagram feed and runs along different stuff, or you get inspiration in all sorts of different areas. Yeah. <clears throat> there, are, there are also some Patreons and some others where th- that didn't exist even three, four, five years ago where pe- people are teaching basic leather working. Now, with that said, um, a lot of it doesn't apply or at least has to be adapted to sheath-making because of the thickness of the leather difference. So making a, a wallet or a purse um, is a lot like saying, I make saddles, I can make boots. No, you can't. They're both made of leather. Yeah. For somebody starting out, like if if they wanted to, basic tool cost, like what? So for sheath making or? Yeah, for sheath making. Okay. No, I mean, obviously tooling is going to be a whole nother ball game. But if somebody wanted, if somebody said, hey, I want to make a sheath, like what kind of investment is, is practical? The biggest investment I would say is probably the piece of leather that you use because she's right. Yeah. Cause I mean, you can't just go and say, Hey, I want to get, you know, a little piece of leather so I can make a sheath out of it. You're either getting half a cow or a whole cow. <laughs> yeah. You can go to Hobby Lobby and buy some stuff for yeah, sure. Okay. But we'll explain, well, maybe we'll explain later why you don't want to do that. But Basically, the, the leather. Oh, no, we're going to talk about types of leather, tanning, veggie tan versus uh, brain tanning. We're going to get You got it. Yeah, because those are actually important to the health of your blade, too. So Absolutely. Okay. Anyways, I'll let Jason finish that one. <laughs> I, I actually knew, so t- 11 years ago when I bought tools and it was at your basic tandy, which, which um, if you're going to be a hobbyist, by all means, if not, and you have the time to do more research, um, I would get some better tools although tandy can be great for certain tools um but she's right with the leather i think between three to five hundred dollars would set you up about 20 to 25 sheaths because again like sarah said you buy a half a side of leather let's if you can find a good double shoulder somewhere you can probably make 20 unless you're making big swords like the gladius that uh that Dan was mentioned there, unless you're, unless you're making, if you're making bushcraft style, four inch, four and a half inch blades, you can probably get 20 sheaths out of a double shoulder. Um, mm-hmm. And then if you were selecting your, your, your uh, tools, right. I would say $300. That's, I know I put $300 in. I looked at, um, yeah. I looked at my wife at the time and, at, at, and said, I will, I will not, I will make this $300 back before I buy any other tools. That's what I happen to know, but that was 10 years ago. And some of that stuff is stuff you could might actually have around your house, like needle nose pliers and contact yeah. cement and yeah. some of that stuff. Yep. And styluses. 
Okay, but let's say like you're someone random out there and you're like, hey, I just want to see if I even like making a sheath. I don't want to invest $300 into it. The cool thing is, is Jason actually sells a sheath pattern on his website for $23 and you can go buy that and then you can learn how to do your drill press and how to press your holes, just get a little tiny thing of wax thread, some needles and figure out if you actually even enjoy the process of leatherworking. And that you can get with like $40 or less. Yeah, I would say that's right. So you can just get some needles and some thread and Jason's little thing and then just drill press your holes and figure out if you like the process of it and then invest, you know, the bigger tools and what you'll actually need to make a good looking sheet. Arguably, if you really want to do it on the cheap just to, to check it out, I imagine it's a little more challenging, but you could, you don't even need a hand, uh, drill press. You could hand drill that, couldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. You could, uh, a Dremel, um, <laughs> would, would work as well. Now, I would say this never use, if you're going to use a drill press, uh, never use the, a drill bit. Yeah. Um, get a needle that's just slightly oversized of the needles that you're going to sew with and chuck that up and use it like an awl. So it doesn't cut the fibers. It just, it never removes any leather so you, because it, you can always see a person who drilled holes with a drill press because their their thread is swimming in the hole left behind. It's not self-healing at that point. Because uh, you've cut the hole. Because you cut the fiber. You create a circle. That's right. And, you've, and no. you've made a circle. She's absolutely right. You've made a circle and you've taken the leather out. So the hole is there. Whereas with a um, chisel or a uh, needle, you would want a diamond needle because that one actually enters into the leather. All it does is split it. So you still have the material there. Yeah, yeah. So two two things you can you can either do is a diamond uh, uh, needle and chuck it up, and then use your drill press. Don't even turn it on. Use it like an arbor press, or oh, okay. or uh, use a smooth needle, sand it down, make it super polished. Um, I use a double zero needle when I was doing this. Turn it on your slowest speed so you're not burning and burnishing, and you can make holes that will look pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're not going to be like amazing. You can't expect. You know, when you're using primitive tools, you're going to get a primitive piece, okay? Like, you know, like, that's just what you're going to have. Mountain man style, sure, go for it if you want. But, um, yeah, if you're just trying to figure it out, though, and want to see if you even like doing it, that's fine. You know, whatever, do whatever you want. Yeah, and, yeah, if you're using your uh, your Harbor Freight $39 drill press, mm-hmm. you're going to get Harbor Freight $39 drill press results, mm-hmm. but... Better to invest $39, see if you like it, than 300 and realize that you're a crappy leather worker. Yeah. The other thing that you'll learn, too, as a knife maker is what goes into making a sheath and what goes into making a sheath well. And so then when you look at a sheath and go, oh, this guy wants to charge X amount, it's just like when you make a knife, right? When you learn to make a knife, you go, oh, my God, this $400 slip joint is actually a cheap slip joint for what it is for how many hours yeah. there are into this you know kyle i i own one of kyle's knives i, I drew up a design i sent it to me he, you know we did price price that i got it and i thought man i, just, I stole this from him look at these grinds i stole this from him because I, I knew how much time was in there i knew how exacting his heat treat was um i, I knew all that and so um but, you know, you guys get it all the time, too, where a, a person who doesn't understand that says, well, I can go to Walmart and buy a buck 110. Okay, that's great. But just know the difference. And if you don't know the difference, you don't understand the pricing. Well, and that's also why I like to have custom makers that I can recommend. Because some people don't appreciate the quality. They want a $20, <laughs> just something to stick a sheath in or a knife in. 
And then yep. some people really appreciate the artistry and the quality. And for those people, I like to have people I can recommend them to. Yeah. You know, when I was doing this whole knife knife sheath making thing, I was trying to figure out my place in that in that industry because I got a lot of people who are like, $40 for a knife sheath? That's a lot. Okay, I don't charge $40 for a knife sheath anymore, but that was really freaking cheap for me, you know, to charge $40 for a knife sheath. And I finally figured out... Yeah. I, I buy some. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my point. Like, I... Hey, Sarah, I some of your $40 sheath, please. <laughs> <laughs> I finally figured out, though, that I don't... You can... I can charge $40 for a yeah. sheath, and it can look like a piece of poop. But I don't want to put that kind of work out. I would rather take my time to make those edges look good, make sure that the design is the way that you want it, you know, and just spend my time and the extra money that it takes to create an actual piece that is worthy of charging a higher price than $40, you know? So that's where I carved my way. I didn't want to do this. I'll start, you know, $40 for a knife sheath. Here you go. Here you go. You know, and just, so I'm not going to do that anymore. Yeah, I think... <laughs> I remember in Jason's uh, YouTube video, I can't remember if he said Bush League or Jabroni. Don't be don't be a Bush League or Jabroni to make sure you polish those edges. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, put a little bit of time in there. You're going to love those, Sarah. Every knife maker should, lo- should learn enough to make a competent sheath so he then understands mm-hmm. how much goes into making a good sheath. Oh, yeah. So he then appreciates it. Similarly, a sheath maker should go at least make one knife. Absolutely. You know, it's just <laughs> it's it's just a matter of of understanding. And, and also, I have a lot more patience with a maker who says, boy, OK, I know I'm just talking to you and you want to I'm, I'm asking you to make 20 sheaths for me. You want me to send you those knives? You know, in some cases, I feel like I'm taking their children, you know, but I but I get that. I know. Me too. Oh my God. <laughs> That's right. I, I get that now a lot more, you know, and I, I'm usually say to them, no, you don't have to send me the knife, you know, make, make me a, a solid pattern. It can even be out of wood as long as it's a one for one replica and I can make it. So you don't feel like you're mailing your children off. But I think in the past or prior to making a knife, I would have just been impatient. with. Yeah. The, the nice thing about having set patterns is I can send a sheath maker, one of the knives and he can make a pattern for it. And then since everything else I do is same contour, same shape, same size, they can start to build a library of my work. So then when I recommend clients to them, the client doesn't have to send the knife to them. Yeah, I like that. There's a huge advantage in that. And conversely, the advantage Sarah has with one of these particular makers, she picked up a, a, a maker early on, Rogers Customs, who I've never met nor handled his work, but he she, he just sends the blades to Sarah and Sarah makes the sheath. And because of that, she's made a bazillion patterns slightly different than the last and got a lot of, of experience with just one maker. And I think that really pays off for her. Yeah. I'm grateful for that for sure. And I still make his sheets. Am I allowed to shout him out? Yeah. No. Rogers customs. (laughs) He's the one that um, he found me on my Twitch stream when I was leatherworking and just doing my Twitch thing. He was like, hey, have you ever made a sheath before? And I was like, no. And he was like, you want to give it a try? I was like, okay. And he gave me, you know, he sent me a knife and I made a sheath for him. And then he led you down the primrose path. Yeah, that's exactly right. She got uh, she got steel poisoning then. Yeah. 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 <laughs> he never let me go. Looks like on Instagram, it's uh, Rogers underscore customs, but with a K instead of a C. That's right. Uh, Any of you guys that you want to 
look for those. So what was the first leather item you guys made? Dog collar. A sheath. Wow. Really? That take longer. Yeah, no. So uh, let me tell you a little bit of the story. There's actually kind of a cool story behind mine. Sarah told hers with a 10-hour uh, – mine was probably a 40-hour sheath. Um, I, I designed a knife as part of a contest for within Andy Roy's Fiddleback Custom – or Fiddleback Forge, uh, his thing. And I drew up this knife and had some help um, and named it. And uh, Andy said, okay. He hated it. He hated that damn knife. He said it looked like a clam knife. He did. Um, Side note, Andy hates every knife that he didn't design. Well, that's probably true. And he still makes my pattern to this day. That's what's hilarious about it. It's probably the top four or fifth best-selling knife he's had. Um, But I designed the knife, and he made it. Uh, It was a four-inch blade Scandi, because I was convinced at the time that that was the only way you could uh, make a knife for bushcraft. And sent it to me and of course you just can't walk around with it in your hand so uh, let yeah. me go make a sheath and boy did i make a piece of poop <laughs> the first one dude it- i mean he showed me a picture of his first sheath and it's actually not that bad so don't listen to him the ones are always a piece of poop there are a couple of dogwoods out there that i am trying to buy back oh there's just so no one will ever see them <laughs> Oh, this year at Blade Show, a guy walks up to me and handed me one of my hand-stitched, hand-sewn, and I, I wouldn't give it back to him. I just handed him a new one. Here you go, dude. Right off the bench, he's like, you're going to get a brand new one? I'm like, don't ever. I'm going to burn this piece of shit mm. as soon as you walk away from me. I'm going to have to try to remember to bring mine to Blade Show this year. Your sheath? I would love to see that. Uh, the first... Yeah, you yeah. can trade it in for a good sheet. I, I still, I still think it looks beautiful. We'll see what you think, but uh, I'm not. You're gonna okay, have to give it back. Do you guys want to? Do you guys want to know a little secret? Do you want to know a little secret? Sure. Sheath makers, even though there's not very many of us, okay, we're like a small little group of people in the knife maker industry. We walk around knife shows and snicker at sheaths that you guys have on your freaking tables, and we know you should be coming to us, but we're not going to tell you. You guys know who you are, and I just want you to know you should just tell us that you want us to make your sheets because we will do it. And uh, converse to that, when I see a knife maker who who does leather work too, and I I, I always have to stop, <laughs> and I'm always like, dude, this is really this is unbelievable. You did great work, you know. Yeah. Oh my god. You guys know how it is, though, man. Y'all are making me yeah. self-conscious. You guys know how it is. There's some knife makers that <laughs> you have no, you have nothing to worry about. Guarantee okay. you that. <laughs> Come on, you don't yeah. walk around like knife tables. <laughs> That's right. Hey. Oh, yeah, dude. Blade Show this year, come by and check out my really bad <laughs> circuit knife, uh, circuit blade sheaths. Yes. <laughs> dude, your latest circuit blade knife is gorgeous. Oh, my God. It's like a darker circuit board, right? Yeah. Oh, nice. Oh, I love it. We changed up what we casted in a little bit so it's clearer. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. I like it. So y'all do more than sheaths. Uh, what are some other stuff y'all do? Like aprons, for example. Oh, yeah. Um, so I started making aprons just in at the end of 2019. And Dan has a lovely one that I made. Um, but they're cool because they're blacksmithing aprons. And I designed them to allow the flaps to hang between your legs uh, for when you guys are doing, I don't know, your dangler things or dangle things. You know, when you're dangle tongs. Well, Sh- shout out to Jeff Fader with uh, the dick tongs. <laughs> dick tongs, well, that's I, it. <laughs> I wear a kelp, kelp in the summer. So uh, it, that's an important feature on a, a, a 
an apron for me. Oh, dear God. Yeah, you know, so that way you can protect yourself when you're dick-tonging. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I make aprons. This is the first time I've ever not been the worst one on the podcast. Sarah, Sarah also makes a bunch of stuff for the gaming industry. So when she goes to TwitchCon, she'll bring along things, yeah. like I said, Midori journals, uh, chokers, um, keychains, um, I'm just trying to think of all the stuff I watched you make. Leather deck boxes. Oh, the deck so my box. That's thing a is huge deck one. Boxes. Yes. Tell them about that deck box. Yeah. Enunciate that a little more clearly, please. Deck box. D E C K. Deck a box. Deck box. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> okay. So I used to play Magic the Gathering and, um, I don't know. I guess I like later on when I started leatherworking, I was like, I want to make something for this. So I decided to start making these leather deck boxes and it holds a fully sleeved commander deck in it and you can tool on it and stuff. And they're just luxury deck boxes for Hold your on. Magic the Gathering play. Hold on. But they're freaking awesome and they get a lot of attention. There's more to it than that. What? She made it. She made it. Oh, that's orig- She made it origami style so that there's no oh, yes. that's way right. for the cards to get hung up. And Ooh. so Magic the Gathering people are are anal of course because some of their cards are worth quite a bit of money uh and she made it that doesn't catch up on rivets it doesn't hold up on anything and it can be tooled she does it in um you know teach me teenage mutant ninja turtle style and a whole bunch of other stuff i i watched her go through that pattern for about a year two years no it was two years um 2016 was when i started it and 2018 was when i finalized the design i know this because i went to my first con and i put out my first deck boxes on my table and this is how much i care about what you guys like the the feedback that i get so the guy was like well i like your deck boxes but this this and that he was like you can't you know people care about their cards the cards can't fold on the corners you can't have um it falling out if you, if it drops uh it needs to be kind of waterproof so that way if like water falls on it you know it won't get in there automatically and i was like i'm gonna design something dude i went through 11 deck box designs for i finally figured it out and i finally got it down no rivets on the inside it's completely covered if a glass spills on it it's very unlikely that water is actually going to get on the inside and you can throw that thing across the room and all the cards will stay in there and i have two different designs one with a hook clasp and one with like a swing clasp but that's how much i care about like my feedback from the customers yeah, you can have a tantrum and throw your deck box across the room the and not have it explode all over the place. Table flip. flip. I make, um, Kyle mentioned it at the very beginning, I make uh, quite a few dice bags. Um, I make them for the Tabletop Champions, um, which he mentioned, um, which you can find those guys at uh, tabletopchampions.com or, oddly enough, turtle.fyi. They have this weird uh, website address. I think, I think uh, Kyle said all the links to that broke, so it was Oh, did he? So it's now it. tabletopchampions.com. Yeah. Um, that's so funny. Uh, I make, uh, dice bags. I mean, we make them for a couple of streamers, um, that, that stream miniature painting and things like that. I make, uh, wallets, um, belts, mostly the hard use hardware items that go along with a sheath and things like that. Although one of the things that I have been doing recently, um, is making props for movies. Oh yeah. So that was a, a weird one that linked out, but I, I'm, uh, some of my work is in um, the movie Harriet that just came out a couple um, months ago about uh, Harriet Tubman. Harriet carries some of my leather, um, a belt, and so. Yeah. I'll have to check that movie out. Yeah, um, I, I was lucky. I, also, The Walking Dead has had a bit of my stuff um, so awesome. as well. Um, 
Yeah, it's been it's yeah. that's been fun. Very cool, man. Yeah. I noticed the the two and four pocket metal mullet wallets that you do. Yeah. I really like that cuz I'm not a I don't want to carry my whole life in my wallet. Right. I'm the same way. And I like the minimalist style that won't mm-hmm. hurt when I sit down on it. Yep. The newest one I have um that I've that I've come up with, I don't know if I've even got it on the website yet. Um I think I do. That one's a lot better than what I was used to what I used to make. Um I'm really happy with that one. I I did some prototyping um and hopefully this will uh roll out soon, but I, I do some private labeling with some companies um that will probably carry some of my wallets as well. So Sweet. Yeah, you also did one for Jay Nielsen that's been on a couple of Fortune Fire episodes, what? right? Jason, yeah. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah it's, it's he's he's a guy. <laughs> You need to creep on his uh, Instagram pictures some more there, Sarah. Go go farther down. It's a little <laughs> it's a little weird, man. It's a little weird. Yeah. That's cool, dude. I didn't know that. Very cool. So what are some things that define your style for your sheaths and leather work and stuff that you do? I I, I want to feel this just at first because I know Sarah and I's style is so different um and it's so much fun dude to... i don't even know go for it oh no man uh, maybe the outlines uh, they started uh, for a while uh because i was you know you and i were pushing so hard i was talking to you so much that you started leaning a bit more to my lines but the, it's going away again i'm so happy to see it just because it's just cool to see you do your stuff i work hard on function has to meet form um, simple is hard and I work really hard to make my stuff look simple. Um, I'm not as good at it as I'd like to be. I'd like my stuff to be even more simple. I, I've, I take a sort of a shaker, um, Quaker mentality, you know, that it, 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 if it, it only makes something when it needs to be made and it, and then make it beautiful. Um, that's me. One of my favorite quotes is uh, a designer knows that they've reached perfection, not when there's nothing left to add, but when there's right. nothing left to take away. Yeah, that's a good one. That's what I shoot hard for. What about you, Sarah? I feel like I'm still trying to define my style, but a lot of people have told me that I have a style. They just don't even know how to tell me what it is because I don't think we know. I have my own style, you guys. I said it's awesome. That That's how you define your style. Yeah. <laughs> I like to make tooled pancake style sheets. I, I like to have the um, real estate available to create a masterpiece that is tooled. And because I draw all of my own artwork and stuff too. I like that process of doing it. So I'd say tooled pancake style sheets are my favorite, but those are also very expensive. So, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I think your current style, if I could wager a, a, a toss on out there, is her current style is, is no fear. I, I see her take on <laughs> that I would just be so leery to take on, and then she does a really good job of it. She's just not afraid to say, yeah, send it my way, I'll, I'll knock it out. And, and you know, it might take her two, three iterations. She gets frustrated sometimes when I see her. She's like, I wasted this letter. I'm like, dude, yeah, but how many of those have you made? None. You know, that's how you learn, you know? Yeah. Uh, you didn't wait. You just learned how not to make a sheet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some of those animals and stuff you've done tooling wise, I think that's pretty indicative of a lot of your your work. At least from what I what I follow you. That last yeah. rhino, that last rhino you did was out of the park. Thank you. That was made for um, Jason Knight 
knives, uh, one of his knives that he gave away at Blade Show West. Um, the winner is a rhino activist and zoo personnel. And he was like, I really want a rhino on this sheath. And I was like, I'm going to make it happen. She killed that one. So I did. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was spectacular. Thank you. Just uh, drawing the pattern, just like drawing what it looks like before you even before you even do it is uh, pretty exceptional. She's got another dragon one coming out here in a couple of weeks, probably by the time that this podcast uh, is edited down and comes out. That, that'll be really interesting to see. It's still in production, but it's looking great. Yeah, I've been putting that one on the stories, too. Okay. What type of leather do y'all like to work with? Vegetable tanned. Yeah, with a sheath maker, you know, we don't touch chrome tan um, because the chromium salts attack carbon steel. If you've ever owned a cheap sheath that turn your knife colors, throw that away. Uh, because they probably use chromium tan or a mixture of chromium and vegetable tan. Uh, both of us are currently using mostly uh, Wicket and Craig vegetable tan. There's, that's a, oh, there's only two tanneries left in America, and that's in Pennsylvania. Although you've used frog jelly in the past, Sarah? Not for my sheaths. I, I do like frog jelly for their garment leathers. They also do printed leather, so you can actually like order custom prints. So like, if I want my logo on some leather, I can get that done. But I, I like them for uh, sheepskin linings and stuff like that, too. Do they have mainly, like, thinner thinner leather, the frog jelly place? No, or? frog jelly frog jelly isn't a tannery. It's, um, see, Wicked and Craig is a tannery. So we know the quality that's coming in all the time out of Wicked and Craig. So for sheath making, I prefer that. That's why I like for sheath making Wicked and Craig. But um, frog jelly is a distributor. So their vegetable tan leather is imported from I don't know where, and I just don't know the quality of it, you know, and I don't want to get it for so sheath is, making. Is all the leather y'all work with bovine? <laughs> Not exclusively. No? <laughs> um, but, but for sheaths, mostly, um, inserts, or, uh, inlays, things like that, that you might get a little more exotic. I work with a lot of exotics um, just because ethical reasons. I've, I've got to be really careful how they're sourced in my brain. Well, and we can edit this part out if y'all want to. Um, I've heard phenomenal things. Uh, I've worked with some Argentines and have heard phenomenal things about horse hide. Oh, but it's really hard to get in the States. It is. It is. And when you tend to get it in the States, you tend to get it, um, again, chromium tanned or made for other things. Like, for instance, uh, Chrome Excel, uh, which people love to make wallets out of Horween leather, like shell Horween. That's, that's, uh, equine. Um, that's the rump. It's premium, but it's not made for putting in sheaths. Yeah. Um, again, because it's chromium tanned, but yes, sir. Uh, that is supposed to be really, really tough, especially for the the weight. Um, there's a lot of leather out there that's that's very tough for, for the weight. Elephant is very tough for the weight, but you know, again, we're back to a yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'll tiptoe up to the line with equine leather. I'm, I'm really not comfortable going all the way to elephant right. unless you can. It's tough, man. It's very tough with inlays and things because so much of that does look so beautiful, um, but is so difficult to find. That's not just farmed, and you know, it's 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 incredibly difficult. So I look around for it a lot. Sarah looks around for it a lot, um, and and we you know try to do our best to balance that. Have y'all worked with, uh, and this is opposite extremes, but I was just curious with uh, elk or kangaroo? 
Kangaroo is great for the best leather for pockets. Because it's... <laughs> like wallet pockets. It, it's thin but tough and light. It's thin and it doesn't uh, stretch out too much, but it stretches like just enough for you to be able to slam a bunch more cards in there than it was designed for. <laughs> but um, it it's tough. It doesn't stretch a whole lot. It just is the best leather for wallet, wallet pockets, except for they're uh, ubiquitous in freaking Australia, but you can't get them here in america without paying an arm and a leg for it yeah something about the shipping cost yeah uh, i've used elk i've used buffalo um you know quite a few things but again yeah i think the dice bag that you made for me it was out of i think elk. that i think that was buffalo kyle or buffalo okay yeah i, I can't i i'd have to, to see it to, to to remember but i remember when you asked me about it i'm like sure and i went upstairs and i think that one was buffalo okay buffalo's cool it smells like dirt though it does smell like dirt <laughs> Cost <laughs> aside, what would be your your absolute favorite sheath leather? Like what what, uh, what I guess animal? What what hide? There we go. What hide would you use for sheaths? Uh, probably a cowhide double shoulder. I would do a cowhide uh, double bend, which is part of a double shoulder. Oh yeah, bend. Whatever. No, no, no you're right. No, you just <laughs> took the front end of it. I, I want some off the rug. No, bends, bends are really, are really nice. nice. No, bends are like probably the most pristine part of the leather. <laughs> yeah. So between eight and ten ounce. Now, if I was just making it, I didn't want to worry about um, stamping, tooling, things like that. A nice bridle with a little pull up that'd be hard to beat. But again, I'm thinking bomb proof, and you can't really do much to it because it's been hot, stuffed, and sealed. So you, it's really tough to to see, uh, carve and and make it look right. But uh, good skirt leather again, eight to ten oak. Man, that's hard to beat. Mm-hmm. You whatever you used what that last one that you said you said those edges pictures Sarah what was that that was freaking skirting dude it was just much, yeah was it God those edges were glass thank man. you what did you mean about uh, by oak oak tanned um oh, okay. yeah 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 so so with true with just oak bark man it, it takes an impression it holds an impression when you see those dudes that make saddles and they're they've got flowers and all that shared in carving that's what they're making theirs out of is usually oak tan skirting which get us gets us to tanning you've talked about a couple of different compounds that are used to tan generally what you get on the market is veg tan correct what you see ubiquitously around the world is chrome tan yeah, it's on your Chrome couch, tan? it's in your car, what it's is, on your jacket, it's all that. They're garment leathers, like, it's what people make purses with and, like, leather jackets and, like he said, cars and everything like that. That's chrome tan. For us poor, ignorant knife makers, what is chrome tanning? You have to rub it on a bumper, 56 Ford, and then it... So, the tanning process um, is what converts animal skin into leather and it, it without going deep into the rabbit hole, it, it's what it, it takes the hair off it um, and, and prepares it for, for that process. Um, and the, probably the first ways that it was made was with the brains of animals, um, which we would call brain tanning. And that's hard to find rarely done because it's labor intensive. Um, there's scraping and def- and it has what's that? A lot of hunters do brain tanning. Uh, it's labor intensive, very labor intensive, and yeah. and messy and 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 dirty. And of course, you you're you're squishing up the brains, usually adding urine uh, to the process, uh, especially you know in in um, 
third world countries where they're still doing that, where they're, you know, making whatever uh, that they need for their lives um, out of that. And so after that, they realized that, that the same tannins, the same acids that are in brains and uric acid and things like this can be found and used from um vegetable mass um the easiest way would be once you debark a tree for say a log cabin you have all this bark left over um that can be used in the tanning process and so when someone says vegetable tan they're talking about some way of getting the tannins um from a piece but from a vegetable right the the old word tannin yeah, go ahead white oak has a lot of tannins in it right right um, the word tannin derives from the, a German word for fir, F-I-R, fir, tree. Um, and so <clears throat> it's it, it's not to do with uh, raising uh, melanin content in your skin. That's a different type of tanning. This is about preparing hide to make leather. Uh, then somebody realized that the uh, the minimal chromium would tan as well. It's far faster than vegetable tanning, which can take months. Um, and it, it can make thinner uh, and softer leathers, uh, very soft. Um, and and so to, to keep costs down and things like this, they use chromes, uh, chromium sulfates, um, other acids in that process. And, and that's what you see in your jackets, like I said, and, and, on, and on cars. Again, the problem, we were talking about chromium salts. And if that's left over in the leather and you lay a steel on it, um, over time, it will attack the steel. And even with the even with some of the the organic or the the veg tan uh, with your simple carbon steels, uh, generally, is it do you not want to store a, a simple carbon blade long term in the sheet? Because will those acids also oxidize the blade, or is that more of a problem with chromium? It's not the acids that attack the blade from leaving it in the sheath for a long time. It's the the natural um, wicking ability that leather will have to pull um, moisture out of the air, oh, okay. or just from wearing it. And now you're you're wrapping it in something wet. Yeah, so it's it's next to you. You sweat a little bit. It absorbs yes, sir. the the moisture and the salts from your sweat, and then that that gets passed through to the blade. Yeah. If you go upstairs in my shop right now, there's about seventeen knives in sheaths and haven't come out of them for probably six months because they're mine. But the vast majority of those sheaths have never been carried. Yeah, and I, I was just always my grandfather always told me, and I never knew why that you carry a, a knife in a sheath, but you don't store a knife in a sheath. And I'd say your grandfather, especially with the carbon steels he was talking about, was right on the money. Now, CPM one fifty four in a dry sheath, yeah, good luck. You know, it's just not going to happen. Now, with that said, Sarah and I talk about this about this a lot, but. When we're cutting welts, the welt is the, the the piece of leather that goes in between the top and bottom layer that protects the stitches from the knife blade when you insert the blade. And you want that welt very close to the knife edge, but you don't want it touching. Because if the person stores it in there, or as they're inserting and drawing and replacing that knife, it's dulling very slightly the very finely crafted edges that you guys send us. 
one of the things you can think about is you, if you leave it against there and it's touching the well, you will pull out a slightly duller knife than if you were to have stored it somewhere else. And with a, a simple carbon blade, which is more susceptible to oxidation versus a, a stainless steel, you'll, again, it's a slightly, but you'll, you'll see that more with the, the old traditional style carbons versus the stainless steels. Yes, sir. Sarah, tell them the story of that those knives you had on your bench the other day that just oxidized in a week. Oh, dude, okay. I said, let me guess. The blade was 01? I have no idea what they are. I'm not like you guys. I get blades and I, I 1095 ABL. Okay, I don't understand it, which is why I love your podcast. But anyways. I think, I think those were 1084. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so I don't know what they were, but um, he sent them to me. I took them out of their cases because they all came in these little, you know, nice cases, the zipper cases that you guys sent them to me. And I laid them out and I numbered them so that way he could tell me what sheath he wants for each one. Took a picture, put them all back in. Uh, it was like a week later before I got to them again. I pulled one of them out and it was so like it had an orange layer over it. And I was like, oh, my God, Jason, I swear to God, I didn't touch the freaking blades. You know, I was like, I didn't even put my fingers on them, nothing. And I couldn't understand why they were all rusty and everything. And he was like, well, you could tell it's not from you because um, it's not fingerprint. It was it was like a fine, you know, very oval shape on it. I don't know what it was from. There's straight lines on some of them. You could tell where it was likely that in shipping this picked up some moisture. Even, even in those cases, right? And I think that's what your grandfather was warning you against, Dan, was the moisture being picked up and, and being carried in that sheath and then being stored in there. It's just going to make an oxidization chamber. I don't know, you know, dude. It still seems like it was way too easy to do. Um, but then again, it's also been very wet here in Washington, really? you know? So I don't know if the environment has a lot to do with that. <laughs> Seattle, really? No idea. So I don't know. Um, well, depending on the steel, like O one, my O one blades. When I'm at shows, I have to stay right on top of keeping them oiled. Yes, you do. Because I can have a knife that's pristine, and at lunch I'll pick it up, and there'll be a perfect thumbprint rusted <laughs> in the blade. Yeah, yeah. So always send your knives to your sheath makers with oil on them. I just recommend that a hundred percent. And then another thing. I actually had a question for you guys. Or just make your knives out of stainless. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, know, you could use technology from the late 1700s or, crazy idea, you could okay. use a modern steel. <laughs> so I actually have a question for you guys. Wait, remember to send your hate mail to Kyle. Yeah. At- <laughs> yeah, as everybody flips out, L6 is a perfectly good steel, Kyle. That's what you're going to get in the mailbox. Yeah. So my question is, if I received a knife, if I receive a knife and it ha- it ended up, you know, getting the orange, was it rust? Is that rust? Is that what it is? Anyways, it ended up getting orange on it. Mm-hmm. You don't put oil on at that point, right? You that that would just lock it in, or or should you? The 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 really safe answer is call the maker and say, hey, this happened. What do you want me to do? Well, yeah. All right. I mean, I do. I did that, but I just am curious, like, because some makers are really new, but like, you wouldn't put oil on it after you see that, right? You would grind it out as a knife maker. Am I right or wrong? Um, I would. I would probably re-scotch bright it to remove the oxidation. Um, I've heard of people uh, using vinegar to remove that that layer. Okay. Yeah, um, if it's a simple carbon, that's going to patina the whole thing. Um. 
Okay, so I'm going to go out on a limb here. Depending on the finish of the blade, there's something called a rust eraser. And it's kind of a rubberized block. It's a really, really fine abrasive. Um, Or you can use pumice powder and just go in the direction of the grind, and that'll remove it. And then I'm a big fan of white mineral oil. That was really my suggestion. If you're going to ship it, please, knife makers, if you're going to ship them to us and you're worried about it, especially if they're high carbon, a little bit of mineral oil, man. Sits right on the surface. As maker, one maker to the next. Man, when I ship a carbon blade, I slather the um, stuff out of it with white mineral oil. And then I will wrap it in saran wrap, uh, which is excessive, but you never know what's going to happen in the post. But white mineral oil is food safe, and it's a it's a heavy oil. So when you slather it on something, it's not going to wipe off over time. It's just going to kind of get thick and stick on the steel. Hmm. So you you like mineral oil more than using like uh, Renaissance wax or some of those other things on them, or Renaissance wax is nice because it's a wax; it'll seal. Because I do so much for the culinary industry, food safe is really important to me. Mm-hmm. And I know that white mineral oil is food safe. Yep. So I, I plus you can get like a pint of white mineral oil for two bucks at the grocery store over in the uh, in the pharmacy aisle. Yeah, as, as a laxative. Yep. Yeah, it's also great for butcher's blocks, cutting boards, but a coating of that will give you phenomenal protection. And I don't have to worry about cross-contamination. For my handles and stuff, I love Renaissance wax because it buffs out really clear. Uh, but for, for protecting the steel, I like white mineral oil. Uh, I, I know when I want to take any of the, the problems I have on Kyle's blades, I just drag it down the driveway because it's no worse than it would have came to me. It just looks the same. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's that screwed up grind lines. Oh, grind lines! I thought those were all stress risers. That's all the same thing for him. It's just you can't tell. You can't tell. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, All right. So, where are we at on this list? Bringing it back around. Uh, Weight of uh, what weight leathers are good for sheets? Like the bushcraft community seems to like a a much heavier seven twelve ounce sheath. A lot of the hunters and outdoorsmen that I work with, some of them are willing to sacrifice some durability for weight, and they want a lighter, like, four, eight-ounce leather sheath. I guess, first of all, what, is, what does that mean? What is, like, say what an eight-ounce leather, eight or eight-ounce leather, what does that mean? Did you want me to feel this one, Sarah? Um, yeah. I've, yeah, and then I'll explain uh, why I would oh. use a different weight for something. Oh, cool. So, so here's what I will say about uh, ounces and things like this is ignore it um there's a long story as to why the ounces were used and how this all gets used but in the american where we still use empirical measurement um every four ounces is a 16th of an inch so an eight ounce eight ounce is uh a quarter inch or excuse me eighth of an inch um so if you fold that in half right or two layers of that you're going to have about a half an inch uh, uh on the edge of of an eight ounce um sheath roughly and you have a welt in there too and we can go into all that um but so eight ounces right around it's kind of the butter zone that that i find 
I personally, just like you said, because I tend to make them for bushcrafting style knives, I tend to prefer an 8 to 10. Um, however, my production and what is sort of a butter zone is a, a leathered and holstered, or excuse me, leveled and, and holstered 8 ounce leather. Um, now, again, if you're making a wallet, 8 ounces is ridiculous. You know, you, you, you block bullets with that. Um, you know, the, the average pocket that Sarah probably puts in one of her wallets is like a one and a half yep. ounce. You know, mm-hmm. it's just tiny. Uh, it has to be the right kind of leather. Um, but I would say butter zone um, is is eight. Now, with that said, if you're making a um, one, a folder case, you're going to want to go down because you need it to bend around corners, especially if you're doing wet forming and things like that. So you're going down to maybe a six ounce or a five ounce. Yeah, I think the size of the knife too kind of matters. Um, so if you're on a zone that you're rubbing, so a belt loop, you cannot do less than a six ounce. Anything less than that, you're going to basically rub that belt loop right off and it's going to break really quickly. So if you're doing a belt loop in leather, you want it to be at least six ounces. But if you're talking about like a little baby knife, that's like two, I don't know. It's it's like a two inch blade or something. And it's just really tiny. Yeah. You're going to want to do a this is more than you think it is. <laughs> Spoken like a true man. Oh God. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> well, I'm telling you, my, my two inch EDC can do a lot more than most people think it can. <laughs> EDC. All right. Well then you just need a little sheath for it then. Okay? It's not the size of the blade, Sarah. It's the magic held within. <laughs> it's how you use it. <laughs> it's all about technique. Good God. A smaller blade, you get more endurance. You can use it over and over again. And every woman who's listening to this podcast is shaking their head saying, he's lying. He's lying. He's wrong. He's you, lying. Yeah. You, you got to cast something on it before you use it. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't do that. I know. Anyways. So, so, so Sarah likes what kind of leather? Okay. So... For a tiny blade like that, if it's going to be carried in the pocket, a little tiny, like for your average size blade, like that. Okay, for your tiny blade, Dan, like that. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, thanks for joining us. Uh, So, Jason, (laughs) you're gonna want. (laughs) Sorry. Okay, you're gonna want a smaller one if you're gonna put it in the pocket. Because you don't want no bulky eight ounce. And it depends on what you're doing. Like if you're going to be wearing it outside of your belt or outside of your pants, then sure, eight ounce is fine. But if you're putting it in your pocket, you want a sheath for it to hang off your, you know, the end of your pocket, four to five ounces is probably just fine as long as you're doing a clip. Because a a pocket clip inside the pocket, it's got some protection. It's not going to get the wear and abuse that a, a belt carry would. Some of the ones I've been making recently, uh, some guys will send me pretty high-end slip joints, and they want to be able to, because they don't want to, you know, it doesn't have room for a clip, they want to have a slip that has a clip on it. Um, And I'll do two layers of two-ounce leather glued back-to-back, back-to-back, and I'll make them a slip that is then lined four-ounce leather top and bottom. Now, again, with that said... Because I laminated those, right, like laminated wood, because the adhesives are so good, you're going to end up with a stronger product, mostly because 90% of the strength in leather is in the top 10% of 
the leather. It's in the collagen fiber, or well, it's in the uh, epidermis at the top versus the collagen fibers at the bottom closer to the innards of an animal. Now, again, we're talking about full grain leather. When you buy a genuine leather or uh, real leather, that's usually the, the top layer, the good layer has been split off, and then they've remilled that leather to have leather, and then they it sort of looks like leather again. It's still made of leather. They, they print it. They, they press it on the top to make it like pebbles. Right. Right. So you had to have full grain to, for this to be true, but then the, the 90% of the strength is in the top 10%. So if I took you know, the top two ounces, glued those back to back, I'm going to end up with something, an aggregate that's far stronger than a four ounce leather by itself. And and you're going to have the, the two strongest surfaces sandwiching. With so an incredibly strong adhesive between. Exactly. Yeah. It's like gluing a liner on, right? It, it, you're not just adding a liner. You're adding the, the G-Flex or whatever you're using uh, to to put that together with as well, right? Well, when you get the, the that top 10%, you're getting the wear resistance on the inside and the outside. Exactly. So, and with your guys' leather, do you prefer to buy it pre-dyed or do you uh, – I know with Sarah, some of her carving stuff looks like she paints uh, with different dyes and stuff. Yep. So I prefer to buy it undyed with vegetable tanned leather. And the reason is because I do get a lot of requests for people who want fancy schmancy colors on them. So for me, it's better for me to have it. Huh? Like what? Like green. Yeah. (laughs) And gold. Yeah. Green and gold. But you can also get them pre-dyed, but we recommend getting it drum dyed because then at that point, it's still vegetable tanned and it has a color to it that you don't have to worry about and you can still tool on it. When you get something that's pre-dyed, usually it's chrome tanned and you can't tool on that and you don't want to use that for a sheath anyway. But when you get something from Wicked and Craig, like what Jason and I like to get, it's a drum dyed, which means it goes through um, a big, huge like dryer thing and it colors all of the hides and the same color. And then it's like stuck in the leather, but Jason can explain it a little bit better. <laughs> I buy almost all of my stuff uh, pre-dyed, but I also keep a good stock of of just sort of an oak that I can do carving and um, custom dye jobs on. Sarah does a lot more painting, dyeing than I do. Um, and bushcrafters, their favorite color is brown. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, so I will go through uh, nine brown hides before I'll go through any other color in my shop. Yeah. See, it's different for me. A lot of people are like, I want red and black because that's my favorite color combo. So I often recommend it. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but the drum dyed process, though, Jason, like explain that because that's really important. That was important to me when I was learning about that. Yeah. So when you when you take a piece of leather and, and dye it at home, the dye can only soak in as far as it can soak in. And so usually what you have is a, a spirit based, a, a, an alcohol based dye that's in suspension. But it's a powder dye that's held in suspension in that that alcohol. You add the the alcohol to it, the alcohol evaporates off, and the dye then dyes it that color. But it, it will only soak in maybe, um, you know, one thirty second if you've really soaked it. The drum dyeing process, uh, you know, they 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 put high. These drums are as big as your you know living room, um, and so they're they're spinning hundreds of pounds of hides. Um, and depending on the process, but if we're just talking about this is the dyeing process, um, that goes through and through um, in most cases. So when you cut the leather, um, 
it will look the same all the way through. Now, the Wicked and Craig stuff that we get and things, they, they, it's not in for that long. That's not a – but the hot stuffed um, leather, like bridles and stuff, that's going to be the same color all the way through. Um, so it's kind of like the difference between – uh, dying and staining wood. Yes. Yeah. Or dying and painting almost. It would be almost a better analogy, right? Because the, the paint is going to absorb into, but just like when you have furniture that you want to resurface and you can sand the paint off, it, it, the paint's going to come off a lot quicker than a, a proper stain in wood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I might be about to touch on a, a third rail and maybe there'll be a great argument between the two of y'all. Mm-hmm. But the saddle stitching versus locking stitch. Yes. Pros and cons, which one's better? The only thing that saddle stitch will do that a machine can't is it won't unravel if the stitch is accidentally cut. So, yeah, and and I have a different take on this one. So let me let me give you what I'm supposed to say. Here's what I'm supposed to say. <laughs> saddle stitch is the only stitch ever used for anyone in bushcraft. And if you don't do a saddle stitch, you are killing kittens in Botswana. The reality is, however, that uh, the saddle stitch, which is a double needle stitch, when you push the needle through, uh, you pull you have a needle on both sides and you cross over both of those threads. There's a locking stitch that goes on in every sewing machine where it creates a small loop, grabs a, a locking loop, and that's that knot that they call a knot. It's truly not a knot. It's a loop. Um is in the middle of your garment or in the middle of your textile, uh, in this case would be leather. So just like when you catch a snag on your uh, t-shirt and it unravels multiple links, that's what those, uh, those stitches unlocking. Um, and so people will say, well, if you cut uh, the edge of a sheath on, on a saddle stitch, because they pass past each other, it will lose one stitch, but it won't unravel. Now, I've yet to see a sheath just blow up like a pair of underwear uh, that are <laughs> that is old. Um, but each will have their place. The hobbyist is going to be doing a saddle stitch because he doesn't have the uh, – it would be idiotic for him to buy a $3,000 sewing machine in order to sew through a leather sheath, which is exactly what they cost or more. Um, but the hobbyist also doesn't have to do 75 sheets a day to stay in business. That's exactly right. So if I think about what mine does when it goes out, um, my sheath goes out there. If I'm doing a machine stitch, say, um, cause I do both still. So does Sarah. I watched her do belt loops today, um, <laughs> where she was hand sewing. I do hand sew a lot of my stuff too. Um, but, and it, someone calls me back and says, I, I, I cut through my stitch. I, I, I forced it through. It went by the welt. It cut the stitches. And I'll say, send it back. And in about two minutes, I have that sheath, that stitch undone. In about 30 more seconds, I have it restitched and I mail it back out. Um, That's the reality of how that works. And so I can hear that there is a minimal advantage, a perhaps nominal advantage to having a saddle stitch. Um, If you're buying true high-end stuff, you're not paying for the saddle stitch. You're paying for the expertise for them to hand stitch that and make it look like a machine did it. Yeah. Right? That's what you're paying for is their expertise. Well, one of the greatest frustrations in knife making is I work really hard to hand grind grinds so they look like they were done on a machine. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Okay. But listen to this high end thing. All right. So if you're going to charge the customer for how long it takes you to saddle stitch, you better be selling a high end piece because there's not a customer that I know that's willing to pay 
an exorbitant amount for a <laughs> that you hand stitched. So in my opinion, if you want to sell a saddle stitch, fine, do it. But it better be the best part of the hide, the most perfect looking piece with absolutely no flaws on it and sell it for a high end price because that's the only way that you're ever going to make your money back on that if you're hand stitching it. Just because you saddle stitched it doesn't make it inherently bad. No, 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 that's absolutely true. Especially if you're using a diamond awl and you're lining the diamonds up, you're going to create a zipper effect just as easily. Now, when I watch really good people, Armitage Leather comes to mind, J&H Leather comes to mind, you can look at both those guys up on yeah. YouTube. Those Equist, the, Equist oh Leather. God, those guys just, yeah. they hand stitch with an awl and two needles just about as fast as my machine and it looks 10 times better now with that said you don't touch any of their wallets for under 200 dollars either well and now we're back to you didn't pay me for how long this took you paid me for how long it took for me to learn to do this, this that's right that's exactly mm -hmm. right yep and take take armitage leather who i he, he's certified to make saddles for the queen that, yeah yeah that's that's what the guy does um he's freaking amazing you know Nigel is, uh, but he he's not going to run it through a machine because he's not making that level of good, that level of 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 material. And and you guys are the same way, right? If I came to you and, and plunked down a couple thousand dollars and said I wanted hand hammered, pattern welded uh, steel, well, yeah, that's what that's going to cost, you know. Well, and there's the there's also the difference between do you want my introductory line that is mid tech? Yes. Or do you want my custom line, which is entirely handmade, and there's a distinct difference in cost? Yep. But mm -hmm. both of them have a pointing end on one side and a handle on the other. Yeah. I mean, Jason and I hand stitch. When we have a customer that is a high-end customer and he wants a high-end sheath, we'll hand stitch it. Absolutely. So here's a funny thing, too, is, is sewing machines are brilliant at punching holes evenly spaced. Yeah. Right. So I just unthread the needle, punch the exterior and saddle stitch the sheath. Now it's hand stitched. Now it's saddle stitched. Is Are you impressed now? And no drill press. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I near have a, a $3,000 drill press at that point. <laughs> right. Apart from the artistry, depending on how, how one does it, it kind of comes down to there's a mathematical difference, but very little functional difference. That's right. That's right. In terms of what you're going to see in 50 years after the zombies come, you know, right? I think you're going to see just as many machines stitched last as long, as long as they were made with high quality components, the proper threads, you know, things like this. There's a minimal advantage to saddle stitching in terms of it unraveling. But again, you have already had to have cut through the stitching for that to have arisen. You had to already do something. And that's hard to do. You already you had to already do something monumentally stupid to get to this problem. Yep. So avoid the problem by not being stupid. Yeah, that's right. So so take a take a maker like uh, Rick Marchand, who uh Canadian maker um was uh you know maker of the year uh or new maker of the year at blade show a couple of years ago he does a lot of really cool stitching he also puts a lot of rivets in his and his theory is that if you fall down and over insert a blade um those stitches aren't gonna i don't care if it's saddle lock whatever it, that knife is meant to go through that substrate <laughs> right and so he puts rivets in to prevent that but he as he also knows now the next thing is 
like one of the guys that I talked to who made knives or made sheaths, he, to make a point, he carried a knife for two years that had no stitches in it. It was held together with contact cement. Stitches are damn near decorative if the, if the adhesive is correct. One of the problems I ran into, especially with my 116th inch blades, a blade that thin loves with, to run through. Yeah. And it's not, yeah. a, it's not a matter of the stitching or the adhesive. It's that the blade is so thin that that point wants to find that little gap between the welt and the sheath. Mm-hmm. And run and, right through it. Yeah. For those thinner blades, we had to put a rivet at the bottom. And that was just because of the blade. Yep. A lot of times, Sarah and I talk about this too. Um, if it has a guard, if there's any way that I can do this, we'll put on the welt, we'll put a mechanical stop so that it cannot be over-inserted. It hits the guard. But on a guardless knife, I, I can't do that, right? Yep. Yeah. You know what? Um, as far as machine stitching, Jason and I have been approached several times, and people ask us all the time if our, if our uh, sheaths were machine-stitched or hand-stitched. Because that's how much or how little you can tell the difference if you're doing the stitch right on the machine. So really kind of comes down to does it have a diamond shape hole or a round shape yep, hole, doesn't it? It does. Uh, but again, most of the stitching, most of the stitching no. chisels that you can buy now uh, through Tandy and stuff are are, are, diamond. are diamond in a, in, a, in, a, in a row. They're, they're flat stitch. And so it comes down to whether or not you can figure it out. If you want to cut the stitch and yeah. find out or not, <laughs> that's what it comes yeah. down to. <laughs> no, I will say this. So for, for uh, about nine months uh, for a particular customer, I made uh, all my stuff was hand stitched because I didn't own machines and I was saving my money to buy a machine. So for nine months, I turned out 20 to 30 sheaths a week hand stitched. One, it was ruining my arms. Uh, you just don't retire from a job like that. You get tennis elbow and then you quit. But two, when I switched to a machine, I didn't get a single person who knew the difference. Couldn't tell. Okay. Well, what uh, what basic uh, care should we be using on our vegetable tan cheese? Uh, I know I've used Neat's foot oil before. What, what are some other things we should use for taking care of the leather? Yeah, do you clean it with saddle soap? Me, 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 me. Go hit it. Hit it, Sarah. <laughs> okay, so I'm a huge fan of um, Skidmore's leather cream, mm. and I recommend that to my customers because it's just a really nice conditioner. It smells really good. Plus, it's made here in Washington, and um, the people out there are very conservative, and they reduce, reuse, and recycle everything. They just have a bee farm, and so that's what they use. So it's Skidmore's, S-K-I-D-M. O R E apostrophe S and then the leather cream version. So before the sheath gets sent out, a good leather worker is going to already put neat's foot oil on it. And they're going to finish it off with something like Skidmore's leather cream or Aussie leather conditioner. So that's, I like to use Aussie. Abinoff's another good one. Jason has his that he likes to use. They're all kind of the same. After that, I don't think that you really need to put neat's foot oil on it unless you dried it out somehow in the sun. Because the Neat's foot oil is just, it's just basically going to allow that leather to uh, get nice and supple after we've already worked with it. And then once the seal goes on, not a whole lot's going to absorb into it after that. But sometimes it does need Neat's foot oil after a while. But usually if you're using leather conditioner, it has its own oils in there also that's going to soak it in and condition it too. So that would be my recommendation is to get Skidmore's. I tell people to break it in and use it every couple of weeks if they want to. Otherwise, every six months for the first year or first two years, and then every year after that, and then 
whenever they feel like they need it or after they take it out. So let's put it this way. Suppose that you are either clumsy and or possibly dumb and you go out in adverse conditions. So you've fallen down a little bit in the rain. The sheath is muddy. It's gotten soaking wet. What do you do? Skidmore's leather cream. Buff, buff, buff. What I what I would do uh, personally, uh, if it was really, if I really jacked it up, I would let that dry. Uh, get all the dirt off of it. You know, you know, soap and water, uh, a very light detergent, um, very little bit of it. Soap and water, get that out and then let it dry and don't jack with it while it's wet or you're going to end up wet forming it in ways you don't want to do that. Once that's dry and you need to actually clean it, then saddle soap can work. Um, it does work. Clearly, it's been used for millions of years. That's simply, however, a glycerin soap. So if you have in your house a perfume Astroglide. or Astroglide, oddly enough, works very well. There's, <laughs> I got a funny story about that. Uh, Is that from the space program? Uh, Astroglide? No, that's from the sexual lubricant program. <laughs> Uh, it is, which, which again, is just a glycerin-based. Uh, um, but, yeah, if you have a perfumeless, dyeless glycerin, even a bar of that white soap your, your uh, wife might have, um, that's going to work just fine. A little bit of that, clean it off with a, uh, a lightly lukewarm water. You do not want hot water on leather. Clean that off, and then you're going to want to put on it whatever is compatible to what it came with. I use – I've had used Skidmore's and love it. Um, I've used um, Abinoff's. I would buy their um, LP oil or cream. But what I've used for years and still love to use is Montana Pitch Blend, um, which is made in Montana uh, out of beeswax, um, pine pitch, and mink oil. Um, many people mention Neat's Foot Oil. Make sure, one, you're getting 100% pure Neat's Foot Oil. But let's talk about what Neat's Foot Oil is. Um, it's simply the bones and, and hooves of the animal that's been rendered down to an oil. So essentially, you're simply replenishing the natural emollients that are in the skin uh, that came with the animal in the first place. So as Sarah said, and she's absolutely right, you're making that more supple um, and that's like using mink oil on a baseball glove. And the question is, do you want a very supple bushcrafting sheath? Maybe you, you probably don't. It depends on the application of the leather. So we tend to use products that will protect it, nourish it some, but keep it keep with its rigidity that we send it out with so that the wet forming that we did to it or the tooling that we did to it will maintain. Mm. So say you you open up the drawer, your grandfather's died, you open up the drawer and you find yeah. the really old sheath that he had and it, it's obviously dry, maybe not cracked, but obviously dry. How do you how do you bring that leather back? It's the same. It's the same process. Um you know, it, it's actually exactly the same process. You can clean it up if you need to, like what Jason said, or you can just buff it up with those products that we told you about. Skidmore's leather cream, Aussie leather conditioner works great too. Um, Abinoff's, what he said, Abinoff's and Matana pitch blend. Those are, are all mm. great products for leather. They really are. And, and so, you know, a light detergent, a buffing it off, letting it dry. Um, now, again, if, if, if you're pulling out, you know, grandpa's old K-bar, that might even be chrome tan, however. Um, it might have been chrome tan where someone sealed it with a, um, a, a, a lacquer. And so it depends on what you're finding there. Um, but if you've got a veg tan, um, everything that I mentioned when it goes on, one of the, probably the 
and I'm going to go against even what I use, but if you had a bottle of Abinoff's LP oil, not only does it work very well, it smells like every leather shop you go into because of the um, some of the product that it has in it. And that allows you to add a couple of layers every, every two, couple of months to oil your sheath um, because we're used to – the concept of oiling your leather came f- before the time of the products that we have now. And so it just doesn't need to be done as much as you'd think it needs to be done. Now, if you have a decent sheath that you want to protect and you don't have anything else around the house, um, clear kiwi polish will go a long way, man. Environment matters, too. If you're in the desert and you you need to rehydrate your sheath, um, that's why I always recommend at least every year just because I don't know where the heck you live. If you live in the desert, I would definitely recommend it every year because I did live in the desert and leather will dry out very quickly if you're not touching it and using it and putting your hands on it. But if you're using it every day, the oils from your hands will keep that leather protected. Um, Speaking of care and maintenance, um, the thread y'all use, how much of a difference does it make for the long-term durability of, of, in this case, a sheath? What should somebody look for? Depends on the application. Uh, and we keep saying this a lot. So the average person that is just, you know, everyday carry, it's in their pocket, whatever. Um, most of the high end, whether it's poly or nylon or bonded or not, those are all going to basically do the same thing. However, the difference between, say, a poly and a nylon is whether it's attacked as easily by UV rays. So if you're out in the sun all day, um, you know, it, it might matter what the threads are on your sheath. I use a, a, a bond poly. I'm sure that Sarah does as well. Yep. They're usually UV treated too. Uh, unless I'm doing hand stitching, then they're usually UV treated. Yep. Uh, my latest batch, Yeah. Uh, I, buy, uh, I use American sources uh, for nearly everything, everything that I possibly can. Um, so these are made in Pennsylvania. and uh, Superior Thread Company, right? Is that where you're getting them? Uh, I, I can get some of my stuff through Superior. Um, but yeah. Now, with that said, when I do hand stitching, I use a, 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 a Swedish uh, thread because it, it writes a 25 because oh, it's a flat thread in, in America. So just hasn't. Oh, it's so beautiful. So good. It's so good. Yep. Um, America just doesn't have a, a producer that does a flat thread. And that's a, that's a uh, braided poly, like Firewire is, if you're a fisherman out there. It's, it's basically a big, fat Firewire that's been waxed. Yeah, but not just that. Ritza's wax, it doesn't, when you pull it through the leather, it doesn't, like, leave sediment on the it hole. cake. Which is what I like about yeah. Ritza so much. Me too. So it's waxed perfectly. Yeah, is, it is. Is there an advantage with sinew, and is sinew nowadays even really sinew? I... I have I've stitched with sinew before. Everything you're going to buy is artificial sinew. And is there any advantage to that, or is it is that marketing? It looks really cool. I'm sorry. What was the question? Uh, sinew, sinew. So all all sinew is is stranded um, poly or nylon that that has been stranded unevenly, so that it has um, oh. sort of bumps and chunks in it. Right. Um, when you pull apart a uh, artificial sinew it, it's just alternately stranded and it, it unequally stranded it's so it's it's so your grandfather's sheath was most likely uh stitched with a um linen thread or some sort of plant-based maybe even a flax-based um 
And the reason you needed to care for those a lot more is because any other product, it would wear and it would rot. And so the stitches could rot away. The superiorness between poly and nylon is that it, it's rot, extremely rot resistant. So an artificial sinew is going to take in the advantages of being a poly or nylon based, mostly poly, and, and yet look like you chewed up some, you know, the, the, the hind leg quarters of a deer and stitched it with that, you know? So you get the rustic look, That's but exactly you get right. the durability of modern materials. And and frankly, stitching with sinew sucks. Real sinew, you have to stitch it wet. Oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah, once it's like trying to use rawhide. You know, if you try to bend rawhide, good luck. That's what your yeah. dog bone is made out of, right? Uh, you have to work that mostly wet. I've used a bunch of wax thread from Main Thread and had good, real, really good luck with that. Great company. So. Great company, main thread. Great, yep. It was probably a uh, some sort of lean thread, so a, um, a flax base too, wasn't it? Uh, I think it's still poly thread, but um, they just use way less wax and stuff on it. Um, it doesn't seem to tear. I can pull it as hard as I can, and it doesn't break. And I've really liked it. Oh yeah, they do make some. They do make a poly, and they make a cotton cord. Okay, I pay. I paid a little less attention to. <laughs> which one it was when I was doing it. Um, what are some of your must-have tools for doing leather work? Tequila. Tequila. I mean, I imagine it's some somewhat similar to the to the knife grinder type thing for a knife maker. It's probably the uh, knife. The big sewing machine. <laughs> a, a knife. Yeah, the thing we use the most. What kind of what kind of hand tool is one of your? In a nimble. A nimble knife, too, that a lot of people just grab their, your average box cutter, and although that might do fine in an exacto, once you get into it, you're going to want to refine down to your what is comfortable for you for cutting and then get a good, good knife from a proper maker. Yeah. You know, I want to see some knife makers making some modern head knives because... Right? The freaking head knives that Suck. they have right now, I just, I freaking hate them. Like, they just don't work for me. I understand how to use them, but they're big and they're bulky and they're weird. And I want a little head knife for my tiny hands, but they need to be small blades. I need to send you the ones that I use. Yeah. The blades need to be thin. They, they have to be able to cut through a precise cuts through leather, you know? And so they can't be like, no, thick, bulky like I think of a chef's knife, but maybe not as thin and definitely shorter, you know? So, right. Is that wrong? Am I wrong? I mean, it seems like I want it that thin. No, you're not wrong at all. Okay. You're not wrong at all. I'm thinking about the head knife, the head knife that I use. Now think about this heat treat, you guys. Um, the tiny head knife that I use is about a two inch head knife. Now I'm, 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 I'm not old school. That. The old schooler is going to use a four inch, uh, head knife, crown head knife by gum for Osborne. Their modern stuff sucks. Um, Marlon made a good one. He made it out of saw steel. Um, he's been dead for years. So a lot of the stuff you, you, as people die, they're not, they're not remade. Joshua Fields made a lot of really good head knives. You don't see them out there as much. Uh -uh. Um, but I, I had Josh make me two that fit my clicker knife and, that's got to be thinner than 16th inch steel. Yeah. And it's not only convex properly, but it bends without snapping and it holds an edge beautifully. So, you know, the heat treat on that thing, he must have really spent a lot of time on. Yeah. I've got a head knife made by, uh, well, it's Nip and Shield Custom Knives. 
oh, Knipshield, y'all, beautiful. He's a great maker. So, yeah, he's in Minnesota, and I bought it from him at the Badger Custom Knife Show in Wisconsin. But I haven't seen him there the last like two years, uh, so I don't know if he's. But what did you spend spend for head said head knife? Uh, I think it was like at least two hundred fifty three hundred bucks. So it was pretty expensive. Exactly, and worth every penny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you make some out yeah. of. I yeah. think mine is ATS thirty four. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's really pretty. So if I got a knife maker to make me a beautiful custom head knife that really worked the way that I wanted it to work, I would send all my leatherworking friends to them. Just saying. (laughs) And I, and I would pay for it. It's not an exposure, you know, thing like, Oh, exposure. No, I'll freaking pay you for it. (laughs) Anyways. Um, yeah. So definitely a good knife. Yeah. All right. A cutting board. Any anything you're looking for in a cutting board, like a poly or one of the poly ones, or I just use whatever I found at the fabric store. <laughs> Her shop is is in production right now, and I think when she gets out there, the she'll have a lot more production room and space. She's playing the move one thing game, you know, uh, like you were probably doing, Dan, when you were in your basement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I had the convenience of every tool in my shop was three steps away. <laughs> And the pain in the ass that every tool in your shop was three steps away. Oh, my God. Yeah. And behind the other tool and behind the tool that you use every day and behind that one. Occasionally, I had to move two <laughs> tools to get to the tool I needed. And sometimes that was the only tool in the shop. Yep. The, um, <laughs> the, for me, I use, a, uh, I use t- uh, two or three different cutting surfaces. Um, one, my main storage bench, which is about three feet by seven feet. I have it. The complete top of it is... Um, cutting board material the same stuff you're going to see at like a subway that thick uh cutting board material i i tend to use daily the one that i use for my clicker press which is about a two inch thick um because i can um plane those and get them flat again and remove all the marks after a time uh yeah you can run those through a planer uh, if you're in the Seattle area, I recommend heading to Tap Plastics for your cutting board material. If you're in the Virginia area, um, Norva Co. is wonderful and will ship it to you whatever dimensions you want. And no matter where you are, Tap Plastics will cut to order and ship really inexpensively. Awesome. That's really awesome yeah. to actually know. Duke Kaboom! Kyle, now I'm looking at Nip yeah. Shield stuff and thinking about buying more knives. Look what you did to me. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i know he linked it to me too. you're welcome <laughs> that guy speaks beautiful stuff yeah yeah he uses a lot of coco bolo handles uh which i can't use anymore so i was uh stupid allergies yeah yeah it doesn't it doesn't bother me to like handle stuff that's already been made but uh when i the last time i sanded it i like couldn't breathe right for about three months that sucks so. it's mm-hmm. When you aerosolize the oils, yeah. so touching them, you won't notice it. But when you're sanding it or shaping it, you you aerosolize the oils, and yeah, it, it can mess you up. It did, that's what it did for me. I even had a respirator and everything on. It was just uh, the residual working in there. Hey, Dan, I've got an odd question for you. Have you ever used uh, camellia oil or subaki oil for your um, chef's knives? I haven't even really heard of that oil. Uh, one of my chefs used camellia oil, um, but I haven't used it. I 
give that a shot if you give it a chance. I love that stuff. It leaves a it leaves a light film, so it can be a little ugly, but it's food safe. It doesn't, it, but and it also doesn't go rancid. So in my shop, I've got camellia oil. Uh, I'll check it out. Uh, so, what's some of your least favorite projects to work on? Laptop bags and satchels. Uh, and is it <laughs> the size, the shape, the customer? What? Oh my god! I really thought I would enjoy making those things, but I actually like really hate it. Um, people that have that want laptop bags and satchels, they want like extra pockets in it and places to put or hang their gadgets and stuff like that. And I freaking just hate making those things. It's it's just there's a lot of seams, there's a lot of folding, there's a lot of different kinds of leatherworking involved in that one piece. And it's a lot of planning. And then also like you have to stitch around corners and a lot of times gussets can be a pain in the butt to do. Uh, I'm sorry. It's just like the the most annoying thing for me to ever make. I won't make another one. (laughs) Um, Mine is mall ninja sheaths. (laughs) I just hate everything made in black with 16 fire steel loops and 19 sharpening stone. Oh, just stop it. Stop it, Paul Blart. (laughs) <laughs> no one cares oh my god everybody loves those sheaths right now too those are so popular oh my god i hate mall ninja sheaths so, so is there a limit on how many things you can hang on a sheath depends on the maker there are some makers out there you would it looks like a bat belt yeah. you know <laughs> it's a utility belt but and some people do it uh, brilliantly yeah i i don't I'm not, I'm not even a fan of fire steel loops on the side of a bushcrafter sheath, which I know is just sacrilege, but it just kills the lines of a sheath, you know? Jason likes elegant. I used to be all about a fire steel loop, and then I realized if you use a piece of shock cord on your fire steel, you can tuck the fire steel between you and your belt and then take that little piece of shock cord and loop it around the fire steel, and it holds it on its on your belt. It's the exact reason why I moved my fire steel loop to my dangler. Because if I fall down and, and everything goes boom, do I want to lose the knife, the sheath, and the fire steel? Yeah. Um, although I, I, I'm this guy, but I have started, uh, sometimes I'll get a really fine honing stone that's a rod, and I'll put that in the fire steel loop. Um but to your point, you're right. It really kills the lines of the sheath. You'll have these sexy, smooth, swooping lines, and then bam, there's this block. Mm-hmm. And then you can't burnish it either because, you know, you got there. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> and I'm, I want to apologize for everybody out there. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know what I'm supposed to do, <laughs> but it's, I can't bring It's like someone tack welded on a sharpening rod onto one of your knives, Kyle. You know, it's like, there you go. Here you go. Works great. You're like, oh, God, you ruined the whole thing. You know, how do you really feel, Jason? (laughs) (laughs) You know, you've got these beautiful lines, and then all of a sudden, somebody slapped a saw blade on the side of the knife. (laughs) Oi, I've never seen that before. (laughs) Okay, so definitely laptop bags, trifolds, wallets, and quiver cases for me. Trifolds are are hard, watch bands like archery quiver. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't like them. I don't like making them. Trifolds are a pain in the freaking butt. Oh, oh, oh. Watch bands are awesome. Uh, yeah, unless you're making them out of gator, right? And then very few people come to you. Um, watch bands seem to be one of those things yeah. that are labor-intensive and pay short and I don't pay well. 
I completely disagree with you guys. I actually make watch bands and I like making them and they're not very labor intensive. It depends on how much you're charging. So yeah, mm-hmm. if you're charging less than like $40 for a watch band, yeah, you're you're definitely not charging enough. <laughs> but Go buy leather for no matter how difficult a watch band you want. Thanks. Don't take back these. Yeah, I got, I got this new. So for all your watch bands, go to Soul Band. <laughs> nope, too late. No take backs. Well, let's not go that far. Ah, <laughs> oh, dang it. All right. Challenge me as long as you can pay. Uh, what are some of your favorite projects other than sheaths? Because we obviously know that sheaths are the highest calling that a leather maker can work. To. Of course. Of course. We get to work with the gods of the steel. Yes. Uh, but if you couldn't make a sheath, what is the other thing you'd like to make? So for me, okay, hold on. I got to go to sheath real quick because let me tell you my favorite project for sheath to work on is when someone hands me a really nice knife and says no budget no time frame, creative freedom. I feel like I do my best work when I get that. So, okay, done with sheaths. Otherwise, I love making journal covers and wall hangers because I feel like those really emphasize my creativity and I feel free to show off my skill and my art. So I really like to do that. Sometimes those parameters are my, my least favorite part of knives. They're like, uh, here, can you can you do this? I don't have a time frame. And then it just keeps getting pushed off, pushed off. There have been a couple projects that it's been like three or four years. So like, you're going to get back to me on that? I'm like, uh, yeah, I guess I need to put some progress on that. I said, dude, you said no time frame. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. For for me, uh, boy, I'm I'm really struggling with the, this one. <laughs> um, uh, well, okay. I think I've got one. When I'm able to come up with a solution for a simple problem. So I, I did an integrated pen loop on a field note cover and some larger things like that. Um, and much like Sarah's deck box, it takes a couple of years of staring at it. Um, and you usually come up with the answer like in the shower or on the toilet or something. But um, when I have time, my brother quite often sends me knives and, and he, oh, you know, no time frame. And, and he's, I don't know how you're going to build that. And I, I often say, I don't know either. I have to let the subconscious work on it for a couple of months. And if I have that, I can usually come up with an elegant solution or a little bit more elegant with fewer moving parts. Whereas if I had to do it next week, I'm going to make sure it works, but it might not be as elegant. See what I figure. I think Jason really likes tight and clean, simple looks. And those are really, really, really hard to do because every stitch that's out of alignment, every line that might have a small crook in it or every color that just doesn't look right, it stands out. So when Jason puts a picture up like he does and it's like perfect, you have to understand how much time and effort went into that piece because you will notice the imperfections if he didn't make it perfectly. That's what I like about Jason because we're so different. I'm different. I am like, oh, let's just airbrush that out and freaking, you know, do this and stick some glitter here. And then, you know, like I'll stick a pin there because I accidentally mistooled that, you know, little fish scale and I'll just throw a rivet in it and then it will look awesome in the end because that's usually what happens. <laughs> yep. We, we definitely have way different approaches uh, to stuff, but. Again, I've you know, you just like knife making, man. You learn there's no right where there there's the way that gets the right results. Yeah. Back to jumping the deep end versus in depth studying on Olympic swimming before you get in the baby pool. Yeah. That's it. I always loved what uh Jerry Fist said was inside every twelve inch bowie there's a three inch pairing knife. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
So my koi fish sheath that's on my Instagram that gets a lot of attention, like everybody loves to look at that one. The three little or the four little rivets, I think there's four, that are on the part where the fish scales meet the head. Um, Dan, We're not don't. supposed to be uh, 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 Jason? Oh, naughties. Okay, so anyways, <laughs> those, <laughs> those were completely put in because I started tooling the scales backwards. And that's the one thing that people always point out when they see that sheath. They're like, oh my God, I love how you did that. So that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> like, I'll cover up the mistakes. But- hey, it's not ruined. Yeah. It's not ruined unless it was ordered. But that's that's a little bit of Bob Ross moment too, right? That's the happy little accidents. That sometimes just happens. Nobody knows that your full height grind started out as a Scandi. Or you were trying to do a saber. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, as long as you didn't break the spine, you're good. Yeah. All right. So uh, where do you think the industry, I guess specifically about knife sheaths, where do you think the the sheath industry is headed? In uh, my case, I think you're – because the knife world is expanding so much, I think you're going to see the leather industry uh, having to embrace non-animal-based substrates. Now, we're nowhere near there yet. You're starting to get garment leather made out of, uh, you know, mushrooms and cactus and all sorts of stuff. But sustainability and, and things like that um, are, are going to come into it. Now, with that said, in America, you know, the sheath, the knife, the leather industry is a byproduct of the meat industry, right? Um, if you see that start to, to dip, um, you might see some some differences. Um so if you want to keep teeth costs down, you need to eat another steak. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Now, the government subsidized the meat industry enough. You don't have to worry about that. But uh, so two steaks. You know, Kydex was thought to be like the thing. And you saw a whole bunch of makers doing it because it was easy. And, it, and that does make sense in the knife shop. But, boy, people don't seem to like it as much as we thought they would. I spend hours polishing a blade. So that a little bit of sand can get in a Kydex sheath and scratch the hell out of my knife. Just ruin it. Yep. Just trash it. Uh, so, um, boy, I, you know, there's only two tanneries left in America. Um, and th- part of the reason that sheaths are expensive are uh, because of the, the – for instance, in the last uh, 10 years, uh, a side of leather has literally doubled in price. Um for for me and and she and steel hasn't done anywhere close to that so you're talking what seven eight hundred dollars for a side of leather no so it used to be i could order a wicket and craig's side for around 120 120 right. now it's at least 200 it's about 250 all right um and it, it, belly leather i can't use for sheaths and things like that so there's a certain amount that come off of that um that you just can't use all the product yeah there's a lot of weight um, so where do I think is it, it's going? Um, it, it really depends on, on the aesthetic and um, what people are looking for. If they still want that leather and steel look, um, you might see a resurgence in leather working. Um, you're seeing a, nothing in comparison to the resurgence in, in knife making, however. so Although some of that goes hand in hand into our appreciation of craftsmanship. And... Kydex, you certainly have to be skilled to work Kydex, but it doesn't have the craftsman feel that leather has. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what I see um, in the leather making industry in the same as um, in the knife making industry is you're seeing so many more female makers coming into the knife making industry. Um, they're being embraced. 
wholesale uh, because they, they are um, a, a bit of an anomaly at this point. But the, you know, the grinder is a great equalizer. Uh, stock removal it, it does not re- require upper body strength and like blacksmithing did, right? And so kids and, and, and whoever else want to pick it up. And so you're seeing some brilliant, brilliant uh, female knife, ma- uh, knife makers. With that said, uh, what's really, what great things working with Sarah is, is what she brings to the table. And people are used to walking up to a knife table or a, sh- a leather table and talking to the female there who's only a representative or the wife of. And that's not the case with Sarah, right? You turn her over to to her and 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 some of these old timers they have a tough time uh you made that she gets that question a lot you know um so i'm seeing that you're seeing this opening up and and as that goes on you're going to see uh a greater and wider aesthetic you're not going to going to see sheridan style carving on leather yeah that's that's a very good point you'll see new perspectives uh in both tooling and shape i would imagine mm-hmm. And it's absolutely necessary for us to keep growing um, and advancing. So it doesn't just look like it came off of a, a, a rancher's hand in Montana, which, again, that's a beautiful piece. But but just because Al Stolman did it doesn't mean that that's the only way to carve leather. Yeah. And sometimes I really like the like branding marks and stuff that are sometimes in there, too. I know you've kind of highlighted those in some of yours uh, in the past. I thought the, that always is really cool. Gives it a little more of a story. Yeah, the scars are, are character, not flaws. Um, so as and we're seeing this in the knife industry, but as CNC and laser machines become more and more affordable, what effect do you think that's going to have on the industry? Sarah, she has an 18 by 24 inch um, Laguna um, laser. And and she, what I like about her, she's a lot like uh, the Wood Whisperer. If you ever watch uh, him, he, he talks about, I use modern tools and I use hand tools where appropriate. And so the other day, a person came to her and, and wanted, this is just off the top of my head, and wanted um, a tree line. And she, she put that in CAD. She put that down. And that was a very inexpensive way for them to get uh, burned in the, the aesthetic they were looking for. The Tabletop Champions um, logos that are on, those were made by Sarah. She lasered those in. Awesome. They don't have to be hand-tooled. So the other thing is, is the exactness of a laser, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a, a water jet your blanks for, for a knife maker. You know, you, you, you take those in and you, you grind off a, a sixteenth of an inch and you're done with a, what was once the longest part of roughing out a blade. Um, you, can't, you can't get a machine to, to make it look like it was touched by human hands completely, you know? Um, so I think what you're going to see are those processes blend in and, and I'm, I'm an optimist in this. Maybe some old timer would say, Oh God, you know, and just freak out. But, um, I'm an optimist in this way that I think if it's, if it's embraced and folded in with the hand style and you know how to do that hand, um, tooling, that you're going to see sort of a, um, a hybrid look and, and a lot of Sarah stuff has a hybrid. Oh, I think it's going to have a positive effect on the leather industry. I think there's always going to be those people that are just like, oh, you're not actually doing leather because you didn't, you know, hand do everything. It's one of those things that's a tool. And if you use it to your advantage, then you're going to do really well. Yeah, I would I would fully agree with that. I think a lot of people told Bob Loveless that stock removal was, whoa, 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 whoa stop right there. You know, and, and, and look where we're at today. 
He slapped a naked lady on a blade and got a 10-year back order. <laughs> yes, he did. God love me. So one of the one of the cool things, I have a laser, a uh, 100-watt, 24-by-40 bed or, or something from Laguna Tools. And I use that as, it's like a hybrid tool for me because I can take a sheath. Right now, I don't have a clicker press. So I could take someone's sheath and I could just like cut it out using the laser and have the same exact pattern all the time. And that is awesome to me. But additionally, I can take like your logo and I can laser etch it on the back with no additional cost to me. I don't have to go get a stamp made or anything like that. Your logo is going on the sheath or your design or whatever it is that you want to put on there. And it's completely perfect. It's just laser etched in, which is what I like. So the precision and the ability to reproduce. Yeah. So uh, to actually cut through like eight ounce leather or whatever with the laser, like how fast is it? I would assume it's faster than doing it by hand, but um, kind of, yes, but you still always need to create the pattern by hand anyway. Mm -hmm. So I create the pattern by hand and then I take it into AutoCAD and I'll create the pattern on AutoCAD too. So you're, if you're doing a one-off, it's always best to just cut it out by hand because you're going to have to, you know, repattern it anyway. So I'll take it, I'll use it in AutoCAD and then I'll cut it out on the laser. The thing is, is that the laser uses a lot of heat to cut things and it's, it's very direct um, heat. And so it's going to char your edges and it create, something that's a little bit brittle so you have to be really careful about how many passes you're putting through it and then you have to oil the crap out of it after you take it out i haven't seen any negative side effects to cutting with leather out of a laser yet and i don't think i will but i do think that you have to use a lower a lower speed and a higher heat and put several passes through when you're cutting it with like an eight ounce so I usually have to do two or three passes through after the first one in order to get a nice clean cut, but it always is nice and it's perfect. And putting together like a perfectly cut out sheath is way better than hand trying to like cut it out and use all your hand measurements and stuff because everything just goes together perfectly and you don't have to like hand sand it and level it out. It just flaps together really nicely. So if I can, I'll use the same pattern on several different knives that people send me. It's almost like it was made to go together. Almost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that um, the laser cutting leather is much in the same way as plasma cutting uh, steel. You know, you, you end up work hardening certain steels when you plasma cut them at the very edge, but they're, it doesn't go very far back because the, whether it was a penetration or soak time or anything like that. So Sarah's the same way. She'll it, it burns through those edges and then as part of her working process, she ends up sanding that down slightly, taking that back to its raw flesh, and you don't have the brittleness there at the edge anymore. Yeah, when you go to burnish the edge, you take away that that tiny little bit of leather, and exactly, yeah. So what's what's next for for you guys? Is there any uh, any new things you're planning on doing? Is there any new project? Well, I mean, do you want to tell them about like? what we think our future looks like, Jason. <laughs> yeah. There, so there's sort of a short term and a long term. We, we've been toying around with this for a long time, but Sarah's got a shop right now that's being built by um, her, her man, Mike, who's the guy knows how to do everything, including leather work and fix a machine. Like as I sit there and stare at him, the guy knows how to do everything, but <laughs> Mike Guyver. But yeah, he is. She's got a, 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 you know, a teenage daughter. I've got two teenage boys. 
Uh, she lives literally the farthest away in America that we can. I'm on one coast, she's on the other. So we 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 talk a lot, and we 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 were constantly bouncing ideas off of each other. You can be literally be 6 a.m. and beep, beep, and I'll go, what the hell? And I'll look over, and there's three sheath pictures. What should I do? On? <laughs> right? And that's how we communicate, you know? Um, yeah. So for the next you know, short future, we're going to be doing things on our own. But but after the kids move out, you know, two, three years, it would not be stupid to join forces. Um, listen to this. If you listen back to the podcast, she likes to tool and do – pancake sheaths i like to do clean lines and foldovers and inlays and inlays powers unite form a leather shop right exactly exactly yep and so you know if we were had if we hired some people out taught them trained them and they did the production work and she was doing hand tooling carving painting and i was doing inlays man we would be hard to stop um so we're, we're we're talking about that um in some seriousness yeah, I think we could. I think we could definitely dominate the leather sheath making industry, especially for people who want to make leather sheaths. They're leather workers and they're looking to quote unquote apprentice. You know, like when Jason and I joined forces, we have a job for you. You know what I'm saying? Like we can help you out and get you in that area that you're looking for, but also you can get paid for doing the work that you're doing and learn in the, at the same time. So that's going to be really nice for people who are wanting to learn how to do sheath making. But additionally, we're going to have the power to be able to take on that for 500, 500 uh, factory made sheaths a month and then charge a price that's affordable for people who are selling these knives, you know, coming out of factories. So we'll have the manpower to do that if we join forces and stuff. And then, like he said, you know, I could take on the tooling and he could do the inlays and stuff and all the customs and just like travel the country and be like, yo, this is us. This is what we do. When you look at the sheath industry right now, um, what's out there, um, you still got the very high end custom guys, like a guy like Paul Long, um, which again, if you want a, a good custom call Paul uh, before he sets down his tools, he's going to re- have to retire soon at some day. Um, and then you, you tend to jump to the very bottom. Um not not the very bottom. The very bottom was something like uh, you know uh, imported uh, you know stuff you see at Walmart, but say a Bark River knife or things like that uh, that would be made by Sharpshooter or in house or um, those types of things. But those are sheaths that are being sold for you know twenty dollars something like that. There's not a lot of mid tech in the sheath industry, um, and that's the niche that I found that that our serenized level of production would fill. Is that mid tech? You're not going to spend fifteen dollars for a sheath, but I'm also not trying to hit a maker that's making forty thousand knives a year, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to hit the guys like Dan, like Kyle, like a lot of the makers that you've had on that that can't take up sheath making, don't understand it, don't enjoy it, or don't have the space to do it, um, but still produce very good two, three, four hundred dollar knives um, that can handle a hundred dollar sheet. Yeah. So for me, for my, my future right now, my short term future and say until Quinn, you know, is done with high school. Um, I want to expand my own reach in my shop. So I want to offer leather work for the bladesmith and I want to put like my aprons in there and strap boards and just danglers and stuff in general things that, 
knife makers are going to either come to me for or send their customers to me for and just expand my reach on social media platforms. That way, when Jason and I do join forces and we become, you know, what we think we can become, we're already going to have a name for ourselves. And it will, I think it's just going to be amazing. Like when this happens, you know, I, I can't wait because we're already, we already have a great worth ethic together. In the meantime, if somebody wants to find y'all, where can they find you? At Soulbound Leather, soulboundleather.com, everything Soulbound Leather. And then you can also watch me making your sheets sometimes on twitch.tv slash soulboundleather. I'm uh, uh, www.diamedesindustries, D-I-O-M-E-D-E-S, industries.com. Um, I'm on Instagram. I'm pretty active on there, Diomedes underscore industries. So this is a, a little late in the podcast to ask this, but Diomedes, where where was the inspiration for that name? <laughs> Diomedes <laughs> is uh, uh, one of the generals in the Iliad. Um, and he was the only general not to be punished by the gods for hubris. And uh, so I really took a lot of inspiration. And I really wish I would have never named my company Diabetes because everybody in America hears diabetes. And if I hear that one more time, I'm going to cut myself. But that was the inspiration. That's where I was convinced. Sarah's got a great story for Soulbound, though. What was your inspiration for your name? So I played World of Warcraft, as we spoke about before. And I... um started leatherworking while I was playing this and I needed a name for my business. And when in, in world of Warcraft, when you pick up an item, so we're talking about video game here. Okay. You pick up an item and it's called bind on equipment. So once you equip that item onto your character, it becomes soul bound. And that's where I got my name because I'm creating this item for you. It's leaving my hands. And when you have it, it is then yours and it becomes a part of you. And so that's just kind of like how I came up with my name, Soulbound Leather, and it's perfect, and I love it. <laughs> that's pretty solid. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not ancient Greek literature, but that's pretty solid. It's a great story. I mean, it's it's so nerdy. <laughs> I will throw. I want to throw out one. I want to throw out one thing here, and and I've seen Dan's work uh, at at Blade Forums and talked to some of the people that are making his stuff, but I happen to own three uh, KH Daily knives. And um, Kyle was extremely easy to work with. He was on time, on schedule, on budget, and two of them were gifts. And the people that have them use them every day and love them. So I'm going to plug out Kyle and Dan, of course, because I just I respect their work. But uh, you know, I can't say that a lot about a lot of knife makers that I own and use their stuff. So yeah, thanks, man. It was fun working with you too. No problem. I have a Dan. I have a Dan knife. Do you really? <laughs> I love it. Yeah, Dude, you I do. Didn't know that. Now I'm <laughs> jealous. Now I'm going to get mine at Blade Show. Oh, and if you want to look for both of us, uh, um, we will have tables. I'll be at a couple of tables, uh, but uh, Sarah Soulbound Leather will have their own table um, at Blade Show. This is the South. It's the one in Atlanta. I'll be at um, 51 Bravo, which was on the podcast a couple of times ago. That's my brother's, but I'll also be at Fiddleback Outpost, uh, Fiddleback Forge. Um, and it may be some other. So th- it's the weird thing when you're making for more than one maker, you, you, you end up getting um, kind of parted out uh, while you're there. But that's what we'll be doing. Yeah, we'll definitely have to make sure that we uh, get you guys in the pit and uh, have a have a beer. Oh, for yeah. sure. Well, that was yeah. like last year. Yeah, absolutely. 
<laughs> Dude, I've never been to Blade Show in Atlanta, and I'm so looking forward to it. There's so many people that I want to meet. Look for the guy with the big white cooler full of right? beer. That'll be That's probably like me. Basically, the reaction <laughs> I get. <laughs> Standing next to Shrek, which is where I'm at. Okay. <laughs> oh my god, I couldn't believe Blade. I went to Blade Show West, and that was just amazing. I met so many cool people, and I can't believe how many people like actually watch what I do. That's really cool to see. Is when you go to these places and they're just like, "Oh, I seen you make this sheath," and I was like, "Oh my god, <laughs> it's so cool." Go ahead, go ahead and reserve Saturday night. Okay, that's the um, pin night, right? Well, no. Um, oh yeah, for sure. We we'll talk oh. off the air, but uh, reserve yep. Saturday night. Okay, I'll do that. It, it's not dirty. All right. <laughs> okay, I just don't want to see your two inch knife. Okay. <laughs> Yet, oh, now man. that when Dan gets there, it'll get nasty. Oh, rest assured, oh, it's okay. two and a half. Inches. <laughs> yeah, don't be whipping that out, buddy. Uh, you, you might also <laughs> want to bring your glasses. <laughs> I'll bring a ruler. Oh, wow, he's bragging. Oh my god. Okay, so we know where to find them, Kyle. Like, where where can people uh, find us? Micrometer. Oh man. All righty. Yeah, you can find us at knifeperspective.com. Everything, all of our links to where you can find the podcast and all the show notes are there. Um, You can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. We try to have lots of stuff in our stories. Um, A lot of the uh, Leather Tip Tuesdays are usually in the uh, stories part of our Instagram. So definitely check that out. And uh, the podcast, you can find that at iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. Um, if you're already listening to it, chances are you already know where one of those is. And, uh, if you can leave us a review, that'd be great. And, uh, help, uh, uh, get us ranked a little higher in searches. You can get in touch with dogwood custom knives at dogwoodcustomknives.com, uh, dogwood custom knives on Facebook and Instagram. And if you would like to email Dan, Dan at dogwoodcustomknives.com and me, cage daily knives, uh, cage daily knives.com. And, uh, it's Cage Daily Knives on Facebook and Instagram and Kyle uh, at Knife Perspective or uh, Kyle at CageDailyKnives.com works for emails. So thank you very much. It was fun learning a lot about leather and learn some things about you guys that hadn't hadn't known before. So thanks for having thanks for being on. Thank you. You guys are amazing. <laughs> thanks. Hopefully Sarah's recording for the first part stays in there so we can get it. <laughs> Ooh. Oh my god, that would suck. Yeah, thanks for being having us, man. <laughs> Maybe Sarah will just be at the end. The world may never know. I will be so upset, but you know what? It's okay. It'll be, oh. It would make it a happy ending, though. Oh All my right. god. All right. On that this note, is not a massage yeah, squad. Thank right. you. <laughs> All right, Dan. Say goodnight. <laughs> Good night, Dan. Will it take it to the edge? That's what's expected in this discussion. This is the night prospective. Let's get to the point. We're gonna talk about our things now. That's what's expected. It's the night prospective.
chair, Jason? Or is that Kyle? <laughs> it's not mine. That is oh, Kyle's God. chair. Uh, I think that's actually the my wife walking above me in the, the bedroom. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was like, what oh, is, is that? The, oh, yeah, the flooring. Oh, that's a creaky yeah. floor. Yeah. Jason crazy, has a creaky, creaky chair, so I was going to give him some shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I am downstairs. Yeah. I'm not the oh, shot. Okay. The giving Jason shit or Kyle's wife, let's just give Jason shit. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, I don't want to well, give Kyle's we'll wife We'll just edit shit. all that out so nobody will hear any of that. <laughs> He's cool. We like that. No problem. 